Welcome to Hooplecast. I am your host, Matt, and joining me are my newbie co-hosts... Carol. Matt. Mel. And we're a bunch of Hoopleheads. How's everyone been the last two weeks? Oh, good. Just being a good. Woman, you know. Trying to survive. Yeah. I'm so stupid, it's hard to survive. <laughs> being a Hooplehead and all. Did you get drunk in the middle of the night, climb up uh, on a scaffolding and tumble your- over and break your neck? I sprained it pretty good. Yeah, but that was two weeks ago. He's okay now. Your neck has been looking a little lopsided. <laughs> we have no guest today. No one wanted to join us. We, I should say we almost had a guest. He was willing to come on the show, but then I told him it was going to be like three to three and a half hours. And he's like, nope. Oh, <laughs> really? Didn't have time. He's got, I guess he has kids. He's got to yep. look after them. Yeah, okay. we're we're a big commitment. We're your whole afternoon, so it's that's why it's been a little struggle to get guests, but you know, I, I'm picturing like a, a year from now, someone's going to be listening to this episode. They just found our podcast, and they'll say to themselves, ah, "I wish I had known that this podcast existed a year ago. I would have loved to have joined you. Too late. Well, we would have loved to have had you, and we would have loved to have had you, dear person. But why were you? Uh, why is that just slacker? Why did Why did it take you so long to find us? <laughs> and we always end up insulting people. Yeah, learn, <laughs> learn how to use the internet, <laughs> cocksucker. <laughs> It's everyone's fault but our own. Exactly. Yeah, we, we start out with, you know, all the best intentions, and in the end, we end up insulting them. And then we wonder that's why true. we can't get guests. Yes, that's, that's true. true. Uh, the EB philosophy, it's everyone's fault but their own. Yeah. Yeah. Taken Mel, from the ship. Mel kills too many people as well. That's right. Yeah, it's it, you don't want to get on, on this train. It's just mm-hmm. a bad combination all around. <laughs> okay, well, we have uh, a Reader's Theater segment. Yeah, I thought it was... An appropriate segment for the topic uh, we'll be discussing later today about mines and mining and the sort of, uh, the a- I guess, apathy or disinterest toward human life that certain mine owners may have. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let me see. Let me get it queued up here. And this is read to us by the lovely Laurel, who apparently lives near me but has still hasn't invited me over for drinks. Oh, oh damn she. What about that, Laurel? Maybe she's afraid she'll be insulted. <laughs> Can't say I believe her then. We gotta refurbish our image a little bit. That's right. Following news items appeared in the Black Hills Daily Times, July 10th, 1877, and September 6th, 1877. The work of mining for the past few weeks has been slow and laborious. On the different gulches, except Deadwood and a portion of Whitewood, but little more than general expenses are being taken out of the claims. On Bobtail, Boulder, Castle Creek, and many others, very heavy shafting is being done, and on most of the gulches except Deadwood and the extension of Whitewood below Deadwood, there is not a sufficient supply of water to admit of rapid sluicing. Very heavy work is being done on many of the quartz mines through the hills, and lots of ore is being put upon the dump, awaiting reduction by the different stamp mills. In Bear Buttes, the heavy work of erecting machinery is slowly going on, and this slow, sure, and permanent progress in a good mining country is a good indication of its stability. The bullet again. Again we are called upon to chronicle the death by violence of a fellow citizen, who, in the discharge of his God-given rights, protecting his own, was shot down like a dog. We refer to the shooting of J.C. Tuttle, one of the owners of the Aurora Mine, a full account of which was published in the Times of the Fifth. The owners of the Keats Company with the assistance of about 40 armed men, 
on the night of the 4th of September, took forcible possession and placed obstructions in the shaft of the Aurora, contrary to agreements as set forth in contract. And the owners of the Aurora, upon learning of the violation of said agreement, proceeded to clear the shaft of their own property by means of powder, first giving sufficient warning to the occupants of shafts and tunnels of their intention. It does seem strange that men, supposed to possess some good common sense, after entering into an agreement and giving their word of honor by the signing of the agreement, should so far forget their manhood as to violate this and compel the resorting of violence to protect rights. It is argued that such deeds of violence tend to injure our country and retard the development of mines and deter capitalists from making investments here, all of which is certainly correct. But what care the owners of these two mines for that? They are each of them well aware that the respective mines are rich, that they possess sufficient to satisfy their wants, and what do they care for the balance of the country? We are not the possessor of a single dollar in either company, hence not interested, but we would very much like to see the amicable settlement of this matter at an early day. I found this series called Gunslingers, which is put out by uh, the American Heroes Channel, formerly the Military Channel. <laughs> and in the second season, they had an installment called Seth Bullock, Sheriff of Deadwood. And I watched it last night, and oh. they dramatized this confrontation between these two mining companies, and they had a, a J.C. Tuttle on the ground bleeding to death. Hmm. I think it's worth watching. Uh, I wouldn't watch it before the before we're done with the series, but it's like a bu- it's like $2 or $3 if you buy the HD version. You can find it on... Uh, there's spoilers in it? Well, there's like history spoilers. Hmm. They talk about certain characters, which we may meet in the show, and some we, we may not meet. Ah. But yeah, you can find it on Amazon Video, Microsoft Video, YouTube, probably iTunes as well. Worth watching, but yeah, a little cheap looking, and the acting is questionable. <laughs> is he better than Timothy Oliphant? No, he's worse. <laughs> he's really terrible. What's that? Oliphant bashing. No, 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 no. Timothy Oliphant is better than this guy. He's a no name. He's yeah. He was he was dreadful. But there was a guy in the back of a wagon named Crazy Steve who <laughs> delighted me to no end. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you- uh, they didn't say he was just like in the back of a wagon and they they showed him a couple times and he had a goofy like look on his face <laughs> okay you should post a screen cap or something i will definitely do that i was going to post maybe like clips from it oh, okay on the on the facebook page i'll, I'll post a this brief dramatization of the confrontation between the mine owners and the shooting of poor Mr. J.C. Tuttle. I also found an account of his last words, which for a dying man are very verbose. (laughs) He says, I was greasing a wheelbarrow on Aurora mining ground when shot. I don't know where the shot came from that hit me. I was not resisting anyone. I had a revolver in my pocket, but did not show any firearms. I don't know how many shots were fired. I told one of the Keats men that if he was badly off for shooting to get a pistol and come out and I would easily satisfy him alone. This as all that passed between me and the Keats men, it was about 15 minutes from the time of my telling the man to get a pistol before the shooting commenced. And then I guess he died. I'm surprised. I'm surprised that he didn't say, and then I died. (laughs) (laughs) And then I died. That is like 
so wordy. Um, perhaps you know he didn't say that. Perhaps though. he was like gasping as he was said it, said it, and it took him like a slow death of twenty minutes, and they just took out all the awkward pauses. Yeah, depending on where he was shot, he could have been alive for a really long time. Well, in the dramatization, he was like gut shot, which I guess which is can take a while. Yeah, but they said that Seth Bullock comes out during this confrontation and arrests like he basically says hey you's in there come on out with your hands up and then he just arrests them and then he comes back and he arrests them more just because he's a badass <laughs> come on out use mugs <laughs> yeah interesting accent for that, that area <laughs> well thank you for reading that laurel thank you yeah thank you This is episode 27, True Colors, written by Regina Carrado and Ted Mann, directed by Greg Feinberg, original air date, June 25th, 2006. It is the morning, or late morning, Al's in his office. Trixie reports that Saul is taken to being a homeowner, and Alma is up and about and to meet with Hearst. Trixie is concerned that Al has turned recluse over Hearst. It's also been nine days since the previous episode. Oh, is that how long? I was wondering about that. And Al hasn't had his hand looked to. Well, he's got it bandaged, but yeah. I mean, but what he, are they... said, he said he hadn't shared it with anybody. So, so I mean, he could have bandaged it himself. But I would hope that he saw the doc about it. You would hope so. Maybe he doesn't count the doctor as a person. <laughs> <laughs> he might not. He might he's not. a tool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, that kind of a thing. Gangrene. He could end up dead really easily in those days. Maybe he's afraid of the doctor. Last time he needed a procedure. Things went in places that <laughs> were painful. Maybe, maybe but he ended up alive. Some, true. Yeah, the doctor's going to stick something up his urethra in order to heal his finger. <laughs> oh, God. Not again. <laughs> they don't seem connected. Just trust me. <laughs> <laughs> it's just his thing. Yeah. He just sticks things up people's, you know. Yeah. <laughs> he just seemed very, like, very strident this episode. Yeah, that's a good uh, description of it. Yeah. <laughs> The kid's got moxie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she does. The stage arrives on board is Wu wearing a suit, our friend <laughs> Blazanoff, a lady in a red dress, and a black woman who George Hurst greets as Aunt Lou. What the hell? People assume she she's the cook, I guess. Mm. Well, yeah. Assumed correctly. Yep. <laughs> is there anything else she could have been, though? It seems odd that they would assume that. But I, guess. I, I don't think there's much else she could have been dressed the way she was dressed. And- I guess. And kind with, of her, a and maid reading her, her the way he did a maid a, a seamstress i don't know sort of a jack of all trades kind of right for a man i mean she's not gonna be a nanny well it sounds like maybe he grew up with her around although she's like look, her aunt lou like that yeah he doesn't she doesn't look that old no it was i think it was pretty common to call a black woman aunt like aunt jemima was that it? kind of thing it was so it's like a term of endearment yeah, for a, a servant who is, you know, liked. Has, a, 
has a trusted position. And, yeah, because he seemed to really like her. Yeah, yeah. I th- I think there's only so many jobs that a woman um, like her would be doing for him. I mean, as I say, she can't be a nanny because he hasn't got any kids there. Um, she's, you know, if she's the maid, basically a maid and a cook, or usually if there's only one person, then they're going to cook as well. Mm-hmm. So, and it makes more sense for it to be a cook because... A maid, you don't really need that. You know, you can get maids pretty easily. It kind of, it kind of hurts to hear a character I like use the N word. Al, Al does it here. I'm like, yeah, oh, but it was it's so not... pervasive at the time. I know, oh, I know. It's just, it's just, it, it's like a punch in the face kind of <laughs> like mm-hmm. now. It's, yeah. You're like, Al, why? It's distasteful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely, absolutely. But, yeah, everybody was saying it, even the yeah. black people. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It was. I mean, that's why you know Mark Twain used it yeah. so much in in Huck Finn. It was just pervasive. It was a indicator of the times, you know. Another stagecoach rolls in. This is Jack Langriche <laughs> and his theater company. Jack <laughs> knows Al from Virginia City. Apparently, Al had been chased away from Virginia City, and there was no time to say a proper goodbye. Members of the theater company include the Countess. And a woman will later learn his name, Claudia, but until then, I'll just refer to her. Uh, well, did you guys recognize this actress? No. Nope. Which one? Not the not the older one, the younger one who... The blonde one? Yes. At the first, I thought it was Sherilyn Finn. <laughs> she kind of looks like her. She put on some weight then. Yeah, <laughs> well, she had well, put she some... she did in real yeah, life. Yeah, she did. Oh, okay. Not that much, but... Yeah. Well, she she is a, an actress from a television show you podcasted about. This is oh. Cynthia Ettinger, who played Rita Sue on Carnival. Uh, oh, what? Really? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. She was the mother of the Cooch Dancers. She was married to, to Felix Stumpy. I thought she looked familiar, but I was like, yeah, crazy. Mm. I recognize yeah. I recognize Brian Cox, though, because he's from one of my favorite movies ever, Manhunter. <laughs> <laughs> Is Brian Cox the one who played Jack? Yes. Yeah, he plays... I recognize him from so many things, and I couldn't put him in one particular thing. He's been, like, in everything. He plays Hannibal in Manhunter. Mm -hmm. I don't know that movie. You know Hannibal Lecter, though, right? Oh, I don't... Yeah, I don't watch movies like that. (laughs) (laughs) So you've never seen the show Hannibal? No. Uh, I avoid avoid them. Carol, it's amazing. You really should watch it. I have heard that it is amazing. It's really good, yeah. yeah. I have heard that it is amazing. And it's it's cool. not any worse than this show. <laughs> well, but it's pretty bloody. It's extremely uh, upsetting and grotesque. Yeah. But it's also beautiful yes. and artistic. Yeah. See, that's the thing that really drives me a little crazy. Some of my favorite writers love to write horror and, and you know, really grotesque stuff. And it's really hard for me to watch that stuff. Mm-hmm. Even though I really want to, because I really like those writers a lot. <laughs> Very frustrating. Well, you're just gonna have to suck it up and watch it. Just don't I've, eat dinner while you're while you're doing it. <laughs> I've I've sucked it up a lot, and you know, some of it I've tried and I've managed to get through okay, and some of it I've just gotten to the point where it's like, no, this is this is not, you know, no, not for you. I, I can't do this to myself. We always ate dinner while we watched Hannibal. There's yeah. so much food porn in that show. There is. <laughs> so, but then there's a lot of murder too, like yeah. like very like artistic, like uh, dead body positioning, and it's like eh, whatever. Yeah. Hum, nom, nom, nom. <laughs> 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 He's eating people. Whatever. Hum, nom, 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 nom. <laughs> yeah, that 
that I have a very hard time with. Mm. Yeah. Um, the actor who played Jack, I was trying to isolate in my head one role that, you know, I mean, he's just been in so many, and he's usually plays kind of grotesque characters. And I know he's been in almost everything I've ever watched at one point. <laughs> almost everything. Well, well, <laughs> it's yeah. very wide. Very well, uh, wide scope. William Stryker from X-Men 2. Yeah, that? I saw that, I think. Pretty sure I saw X-Men 2. But anyway, one of the things that I thought was really interesting when they came off the stage, and they they weren't clear who this guy was exactly, but between, at least I didn't hear them say anything about him being an actor until much later, um, but between the the way he was dressed and his... his uh, attitude and everything else it was so obvious that he was supposed to be an actor and all i could think of was um years and years ago when i was a kid i had teacher Stella adler who was a very famous acting teacher and she was part of a very famous acting family and she was like in her 80s when i knew her and she was born at you know early part of the 1900s and her father had been one of the premier actors in yiddish theater in new york city so he was like in the you know late 1800s and early 1900s. And one of the things she would bemoan every now and then was she would get into this whole thing of, when an actor walked down the street, you knew it was an actor. He had a cape and he had, usually she would actually be saying an actor. Mm-hmm. You know, he had a cape and a hat and, and an attitude. And he walked down the street and you knew he was an actor. Yeah. And all I could think of was her saying this when um, when this guy got out of the, the coach. And I'm uh-huh. like, okay, that's an actor. Yeah, well, he had the cape and he had the hat. And he's like, I'm from the theater. I'm yes. here. <laughs> that's right. I think she also mentioned they would have, you know, a scarf. You know? That was have the problem, the- too. Like, because they kept referring to him as maybe being, like, homosexual. And they kept saying, oh, he's an actor. So it felt like it was kind of like... Actor equals homosexual <laughs> in their minds. <laughs> this guy, this guy should like employ EB too sweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When we went to the Twin Peaks Festival the first night, we had that pre-festival mixer at the Roadhouse, and this English guy that Matt introduced me to, and Matt said something like, "This we do a Deadwood podcast together." The guy starts talking, and then I was like, well, okay, let's talk privately, because Matt's my hooplehead. He doesn't, he's a newbie, he doesn't know, don't spoil him. And the guy was like, uh, he was very against Brian Cox. Like, that was his whole, that's what he wanted to talk to me about. Really? He was like, he's like, what happened in season three with the theater people and, and Brian Cox? I really hated him in this role. What? He's delightful. I thought he was great. I, I think he's delightful also, but I guess you, I can see that he might be a little too broad, a little oh. kind of... Out there. Oh, I, so maybe I don't the think same. I do not think that was too broad. I think it's the <laughs> same problem that people had with uh, Stephen Toblowski. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a or little it's exaggerated. Like kind of like a wacky, yeah, wacky character. Yeah, that's kind of. But at this point, that's kind of what the show is not devolved into, but sort of transitioned into, which is that we can have funny, fun things. Yeah, and he's a f- fun guy, and at least unlike say Shaughnessy, that kind of comes out of nowhere and is like cartoonish. This guy is an actor, so he's yeah, he's a little outrageous. Yeah, and he's and yeah. it was his job to be that way. And honestly, uh, this is not. 
this is not far from the truth for an awful lot of people. Mm. And at the, um, and as, you know, Stella had said, I mean, Stella was, Stella was in the grand tradition. You know, when, when she came to a party, I remember we had a, a party for the school and she showed up, the party started like 10 o'clock. She showed up at the strike of midnight in lavender fur from head to foot. Lavender? <laughs> lavender, yes. Lavender hat, fur hat, lavender fur um, cape kind of thing with a young man of 20 on each arm escorting her. I mean, <laughs> you know, this was, you know, she made an entrance and, mm-hmm. you know, you knew she was there. And uh, this is, this guy is not so over the top, folks. <laughs> really <laughs> <laughs> so we got Carol's first impressions of Jack uh, about you two. I already said I thought he was delightful, but that could be just because I I have my previous opinion of like of Brian, Brian Cox. Cox. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I just uh, yeah, I I like him. I like these kind of outrageous characters yeah. in the show, and yeah. I love I love his relationship. I love Al this episode because he has such like you can you kind of get a. a a little bit of a view into his friendships, like with mm. Wu and then with Jack, and it's just delightful little friendships. Like yeah, it's yeah. just, it's just like a little bromance. Specifically with this guy, yes. you, you <laughs> specifically with this guy, Mel actually thought, "Is is all are these guys gay together?" <laughs> no, you know what? I watched the episode twice, and the second time I was like, "No, Jack is coming on to Merrick," but that's later. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I was Merrick's ego. Actually, I was wondering about Jack as far as not that you know. I never got into that, but I the way Al was was treating him and everything. I mean, I get the idea that he could just be a loose cannon as far as personality wise and everything. But I also got the feeling that there was something more going on with this guy. Like this guy is some other kind of operator besides just you know theatrical. Um, I don't know if that's going to be true or not, but it just seemed like, like Al had more trepidation and everything, like that this guy, um, that this guy was some kind of operator. Well, later on, he confesses that Jack makes me nervous, but I can't say why he makes me nervous. And I, I just think it's when you're an introvert or when you keep things, keep the cards close to the vest and you don't have a lot of friendships when there's someone who is like everyone's friend and wants to hug you and is like the life of the party and a center of attention. You're like, this person like drives me crazy and really puts me on edge. Cause he's so unlike me. <laughs> yeah. And he could, as I say, in that, if that's the case and it's just his personality, I mean, he also could be someone that Al doesn't feel like he can control. That he's, he's kind of, a, as I say, a loose cannon that, you know, was you seem to be such good friends, though. Yeah, but but okay, if you have okay, I used to have a fr- friend that the way my mom would describe him is that he was like a big puppy. You love him, but you're never sure where he's going to piddle. Y- you know, it, you don't know what the guy is liable to say or do in mm-hmm. a situation. I understand that. I understand. Yeah. That. No. And but we'll and we'll get to it. But later on, Johnny will imply that. Jack is gay, and Al will immediately defend him and say, "Oh, he's all right." <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a fun friendship, and um, I'm very happy that this character has shown up. It may or may not surprise you that Jacqueline Grish is a real character. Oh. He actually arrived in Deadwood in July 1876, before Wild Bill Hickok was shot. Oh, really? Uh, now I don't know if 
I don't know if they kept him out of the show early on because they felt it was already too crowded with characters or if maybe they just hadn't figured out what they could do with him at that point, so they just held on to him. But I, I'm thinking that one of the things that it brought to my mind when I was watching it was that, you know, we've been talking about how this camp is becoming more and more of a town. And although you had told us that the real Deadwood had theaters and such by this point, um, we're kind of seeing it develop. I mean, now it's got a school and, hey, an acting troupe shows up. And, you know, I almost felt like it's part of the progression. And maybe they just felt like they would use it later on to, to really make it feel like civilization is coming to the camp. His theater troupe would not have fit with the rough and tumble season one days. Just thinking that uh, from what I know of Al Swearingen, uh, the fact that he gets into like, like kind of like shows and stuff later on in his life, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of, I feel like this is kind of like a precursor to that. Well, at the Gem Saloon was actually the Gem Theater and they had, they had shows and dances and, and boxing matches and masquerade <laughs> balls and like, they had like all kinds of things. That's kind of what, saloon. yeah. Yeah. I've got something from Old Deadwood Days that's written about Jack. Jack Langriche was born in Dublin, reared in the United States, and lived his artistic life in the West. He was a great actor and abundantly able to shine in the very best organizations, but he preferred his own company, his own theater, freedom of thought, freedom of action, and the mountains of the West. He wanted always to be able to do as he pleased, spoil a matinee if he wanted to. He hated matinees. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody likes matinees. Random. Now, there's speculation already um, amongst you guys that Jack in the show could be gay. I mean, in reality, he may have been gay as well, but in this one I'm about to read you, he has a wife, so prepare yourselves for that. Jacqueline Grisha and his wife, turning their faces away from the Broadway and the Strand, lifted up their eyes unto the hills. The lure of the West was in their blood, the love of the mountains in their hearts. They could have played in any city they chose, and they chose the frontier. From the time they opened in San Francisco in the early 50s, they were known wherever men dug gold as the mining camp players. Simultaneously, with every gold discovery, it was said, Jack Langrish appeared with a theater under his arm, a real theater with no dance hall or bar attached, a house of clean, clever comedy, melodrama, and tragedy, to which men took their families and whose doors were never open on Sundays. He built more theaters on the frontier than any other man who ever lived. Early in 76, he came to Deadwood and for a short time leased the Bella Union Variety Theater, giving it, during his tenancy, a strange new character that must have astonished its log walls. During his short lease, Wild Bill was killed by Jack Bacall in the Number 10 Saloon next door, and Langriche gave the use of his theater for the rump court that tried and acquitted McCall. The Bella Union's neighbor on the other side was more peaceable. It was a narrow wedge of a lunch counter, calling itself humbly, crumbs of comfort along the crack in the wall. Okay. And I had to add that last part uh, for two reasons. One, that is a very long name for your establishment. Yes. <laughs> Crumbs of comfort along the crack in the wall. And two, when I think of lunch counter, I think of carnival. <laughs> I don't remember. Uh, that's where they ate. No, that's where the hooch, the cooch dancers would supposedly like get up on a on the row of the stage and spread their legs and the oh, men would like come this. along and like lick the crotches or something. Oh, geez. Called, it was called the lunch counter and uh, Rita Sue, I think wanted to do that. And Stumpy was like, no way. Or he wanted, or maybe he wanted to do it. And she was like, no. 
And now she's in the show. And until we find out that her name is Claudia, I will just refer to her as Rita Sue. <laughs> Our miscellaneous prediction was how many new characters we were going to meet this episode. Let's see. And I count four. Damn. Aunt Lou, Jacqueline Grish, Claudia, and the Countess. And I'm not counting that lady in the red dress because she has no lines. <laughs> <laughs> Alma is at the doc's cabin. She is in good spirits until Doc asks her about the medicine, and then she becomes defensive. She hates being treated like a sick person, and she always suspects him of sitting in judgment when he's merely asking as a physician. seemed to me that, um... I was just wondering if, uh... Ellsworth has been telling everybody about, uh, Alma <laughs> and how she is, because that's what it seems like to me. Because hmm. they seem to... They seem to kind of act as if she maybe has postpartum? I don't know. Even though she, I don't feel like she's acting that erratically, but no. Mm. But don't you find that like she? Yeah, I mean, like people she, keep saying, "Oh, she's acting strange," and she's just you know she's out of character. Yeah, I'm wondering whether they've just haven't seen her in. I mean, she's she's free right now, so and hopes, yeah, she was free for a very short time between. Let's see, well, when her husband died. When her husband died, but then she had to get off the the stuff, and that took a while. And then she ended up involved with Bullock, and then she thought she was pregnant. So was she ever truly free? <laughs> no, this is the first time there where it's like she doesn't have something like distracting her and hang, kind of hanging over her head and stuff. This is the very short time between getting off the the laudanum and getting involved with Bullock. Hmm. Plus, I don't know, they're men, so they're like, well, you just had an abortion nine days ago. Yeah, I suppose. You should be, like, wrecked with grief. And she's like, yeah, yeah I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How could well, that be? You're a woman. Like, isn't this just torn your whole world apart? She's no. Yeah, it was also, sad. I'm sad, but all right. Also, you know. physically, I mean, they, they might be also concerned with for her physically as well. Well, I suppose they would see her as having, like, a weak countenance now because she can't have children. So. Mm. There's that. Yeah. Before E.B. calls her haughty <laughs> later, I wrote down in my notes that she's being very haughty. Like, that's yes, the perfect yes. word for it. Just yeah. re reverting to episode one Alma or something. I have Alma is quite on her high horse. Mm-hmm. With Doctor and Ellsworth both. Yeah. Yeah. Also, the doc has a bad cough. That'll come back later. Yeah. Aunt Lou Marchbanks demands to clean Hearst's boots before he gets that peach cobbler. <laughs> will board her in the hotel, which she calls Brave. He offers to take her to see the camp, but she prefers to head straight to the kitchen. She asks if the place is rich, and he says the richest find yet. Who needs Missouri and the birds, then? Mm. He, I found him acting, he's acting kind of like a, have a kid. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I, I get why you were saying about whether she was, you know, because I thought that, but then I'm looking at her, and I'm looking at him, and I'm thinking to myself, gee, I don't think she's older than he is. I think she's younger than he is. Yeah, but it just seems that way, right? Probably just because yeah. he's got such affection for her and because, yeah, he's acting like a kid around her. Like he's, he's, someone, he's acting like she's his mom or something, which is yeah. kind of weird, but I suppose he's it's someone not. someone he can depend on. Yeah. And not worry about... Someone that can take care of him. Yeah, and, and not worry about... Uh... I think makes him feel human almost. Like, he can project on her, like, these feelings, and sh all she can do is agree. Like, she can't contradict him, she can't, 
uh, rebuke him or or anything. She just has to be sort of like uh, you know congenial and happy, and he kind of feeds off of that. And then it's like, hey, I'm in a normal relationship. I'm like a normal person when I'm with her, and she loves me, and I love her. I love my aunt Lou. Where was Hurst from? Doing Missouri, I guess. Okay, so she very likely was a slave at, with the family. Let's see here. Missouri was slave state. She, she's supposed to be like a real yeah, character. Yeah, Sullivan, Missouri. She's not a real character, but I, she's probably like a proxy for some real person in his life. Who, if, if he grew up with slaves, then maybe she's like the daughter of the woman who cared for him. Yeah, yeah. You know, raised him. She's So maybe he like grew up with her in that she respect. Could be, she could be just a few years older than him, and that might make enough of a... Yeah. You know, that's true, and they did have kids taking care of kids. Yep. Um, but it's, what, 1877? Is that when it is? It's like 12 years after yeah. the Civil War? So she definitely would have been almost certainly born and raised a slave. Mm-hmm. Could very well have been part of their family. Yep. I did find something here that William Randolph Hearst joked that his great-grandfather owned nine slaves. Oh. It says, it says joke. Ah, it's hilarious. <laughs> I suppose that's not a lot of sleeves, though. Yeah, what? How I think is- one is a lot of sleeves. Yeah, how is this a joke? Well, I don't know. Some people didn't. Some people own hundreds and hundreds of sleeves. Yeah, you know? like the really well, rich people with the kind of money that William Randolph Hearst ended up with. Yeah, mine would probably seem like a paltry amount yeah. compared to plantation owners who owned hundreds and hundreds. Okay, yeah, exactly. but George Hearst was—he was raised poor. Like right. he, he even says, does he say in this one or or is it a future episode? Like my father sold something on the side of the road or something. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember with the specifics, but he told Al the last time just before he took off his finger. Maybe he meant by the nine slaves. Maybe he meant like his family members. Yeah, it could have been. He had nine kids. Yeah, I could. Yeah, I bet you that's what it was. So what are your first impressions of Aunt Lou? Uh, at least I at, like her. At least at this point. <laughs> I um, like her. I yeah. like her more later. <laughs> yeah. As opposed to the last scene with her? Uh, I mean, the last scene with her, at least in my opinion, is fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, at this point, what are you thinking? I liked, I liked her even at this point, because she was just kind of like, you, you let me do my job, and basically shut up and let me do my job and let me take these boots off of you. They're disgusting. Mm. I just like, I like her kind of attitude towards everything. And I, I could see that she had like, whenever he would say things like she would agree with them, but she had a sort of thoughtfulness about it, Mm. her that I kind of appreciated that she was really thinking about what he was saying. Yeah. I would, I liked her, but then I was like, why would you work for this horrible, horrible man? And <laughs> the then, money. And then, and then later on, <laughs> it became apparent. <laughs> and then later on, when she was making fun of him, I was glad. But then also at the same time, I was like, that scene seemed a little bit anachronistic with just how she was speaking. I don't know. It seemed like like a more modern way of speaking. I don't know. Oh, I think I've mentioned no. that before with other things, but the I show the show would just randomly so. throw in. I didn't think so. No. No. Either. No. Al says Wu looks like an idiot in his suit. I think he looks okay. great. Yeah, that's I, what I thought, too. And and even later, Jacqueline Carisha is like, oh, that guy's Taylor. Hope you're not his Taylor. It's like, I think he looks fantastic. Yeah, he does. I don't I know guess, what the problem was. I no. guess it's one of those things that when we look back on, on uh, fashion from the time, we don't see the differences. But they would see, you know, well, he's got the 
you know, wrong cut of the coat. That's, you know, or something like that, I would think. I guess. Yeah. I think he looks, again, I think he looks great. Yeah. Wu scribbles something for Al that is Chinese are coming in 10 days. Al will act as a translator between them and Hearst. So <laughs> at the end of the previous season, Wu becomes boss of the neighborhood by killing Mr. Lee. And uh, that was sort of the Hearst-like test. Like if, you know, we'll let these two Chinese men fight it out and the winner can work for me and, you know, bring workers into the camp for those mines. So there's more Chinese coming? Another rival Chinese? Apparently. <laughs> I like that Wu's learning more English, though. I think that's kinda. nice. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of nice. And it's nice that Al is, like, being such a pal to him. Like, they're such buddies. <laughs> it's great. I enjoy well, it. Now Wu has decided he's going to, you know, he's American, so... Yeah. That he's going to start learning English. <laughs> that, hence the suit. And also yep. the um, what Al thought was an interracial marriage. He's like, oh, my. He's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, he married her? No, they're talking about the suit. <laughs> that was pretty good. Yeah. Ellsworth is in a fit about Alma meeting with Hearst. He accuses her of being arrogant. Hearst doesn't let others set policy. He begs her, he begs her, spare him that paper with your pretty ideas. And later we're going to find out how right Ellsworth was. I don't really like the way Ellsworth is approaching Alma. I feel like I feel like, and I feel like she is a, handling his kind of outbursts like a champ. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she's still in, in, even though he's all pissy, she's still inviting him to the meeting and all this stuff. But well, I think he's still really I, oh. upset by the what she did on her deathbed. On you know, yeah, I know. I know he's still kind of holding it against her, but he's also angry because he knows what Hearst is all about. But he's still not listen. handling it in the best. Like, no, know, he's he could not. be handling it better. Oh, absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. But yeah. I think I think just the fact that she just will not, she really doesn't give him any credit whatsoever. No, he's not listening to him as far as what he's like. True. She made it clear to him that she, um, she doesn't trust him with Sophia after if she's if something happens to her you know I suppose it's kind of a little bit too uh like when later when she has that meeting with Hearst and accuses her of emasculating him that's kind of what she's doing a little bit to uh Ellsworth as well I guess it's very much what she's doing to Ellsworth I mean I, I agree he's not handling it well yeah but you know she she could have softened a lot of these these things that she's doing by just explaining stuff to him. I know. Why won't people talk? <laughs> mm. Merrick wants Al to talk about Langriche. Al does not want to. Jack makes him nervous, although Al can't say why. And I guess we already talked a little bit about why Jack makes Al nervous. Yeah, he seemed not, not happy to see him at the beginning of the episode, but by the end he's like... They're like BFFs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, BFFs. <laughs> He's like, just, maybe they left up. Well, they did leave off kind of bad. Jack's just too fucking suave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just kind of like how he's like, oh, this guy. I can't stand this guy. All right, I'll show you around, I guess. And then, like, <laughs> and then and Jack's like, you know what? I'm tired. I want to go. And it's like, no, 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 no. We're going to keep walking. I <laughs> know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have a real fun relationship. E.B. fears he is to be replaced, as Richardson has been replaced by an Ethiope. Hearst comes downstairs and assures E.B. that Richardson may stay on in some capacity 
Hurst also wants to know why Alma might have changed her mind about meeting with him. E.B. doesn't know, but tells Hurst she was formerly a dope fiend and a sexual deviant. Disgusted by E.B., as we all are, Hurst goes back upstairs. Richardson gives a thumbs up. <laughs> what? Was you never... <laughs> what was E.B. doing? This was great. It's <laughs> verbal diarrhea. You can't stop. Oh my god, it was so good. <laughs> but, I mean, physically, he had his head down on the desk, and he had... It was like a dog that was yeah. cowering to the alpha dog. Yeah, totally. He's very squirrely. Extra squirrely than he normally is. He's normally very squirrely. And this is like... Well, he's trying to show show Hurst, I'm beneath you. See, I'm getting... I'm beneath you. This was great, though, when he was like... I, like, when Hurst was like, I'm here for info about Mrs. Ellsworth. She's a cunt, an addict, and a slut. Do you want more? <laughs> <laughs> Like, he couldn't wait to dish the dirt. Yeah. It'd be interesting to go back to, like, the first few episodes of season one and see what E.B. was like. I love the thumbs up by Richardson. Oh my god, the best. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's kind of reminiscent of Twin Peaks thumbs up. <laughs> I was wondering if E.B. was trying to cover, like, something on his face or something at first. Like, so, try and make it that Hearst wouldn't see something on him. And then it was like, no... Not? He's just doing just weird being, stuff. He's just being overly theatrical. Mm. Yeah. Oh, really strange. Yeah. I love the look on her face. Oh, so good, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was a thing with um Aunt Lou. I just thought the actress did a really, really great job of doing exactly what you were saying, Mel. Of, you know, you could really see her... Thinking. Kind of, yeah, thinking yeah. and kind of ambivalence about what he was saying and... You know, which way is the cat going to jump kind of thing. Yeah. On her face. Yeah. Well, the camera also it, it sort of put him in the background and her in the foreground with mm-hmm. her back to him. And you could see in her, just in her expression, kind of weariness and sadness and how she had to measure all of her responses because if she said the wrong <laughs> thing, he, you know, she would lose her job. But she didn't really agree with anything he was saying. And she was just sort of tolerating him. Yeah. Honestly, from what we saw later on, I think losing your job would be the least of her problems. Mm-hmm. That guy is psychotic. Mm-hmm. Merrick is absolutely enchanted by Jack Lingrish. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Jack sends okay. Merrick away with a promise to later beard him in his lair. <laughs> Explain. Uh, is this uh, Mel's word of the day I, segment? <laughs> there's, there's there's another one, but this is one of them, yeah. Well, bearded, it can be a verb. <laughs> bearded means to seize or pluck. So he'll, he's basically saying, I will seize you later in the day. We'll talk, so, basically. We'll talk. <laughs> Quote unquote talk? I thought for sure he would go like visit him for like, like, I don't, I don't think Merrick knows what he's in for. <laughs> I feel like. Oh, no. <laughs> That's what I felt like. I was like, mm. I will beard you. Oh, what does this mean? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Merrick knows. <laughs> uh, uh, you figure he's a newspaper man, and this is an actor and theatrical producer. <laughs> the two of them are, you know, a match made in heaven. I guess, yes. yeah. yeah. Well, he represents sophistication and class, the arts. He's... Also, Merrick finally has someone who actually wants to give him information. Yeah. Yes, publicize me, please. I mean, he's constantly going around trying to get Al to tell him what's going on. And here this guy is like, yes, I will tell you all my plans for the great theatricals that we will be having. 
Oh. Sorry, I'm just trying to find the the Richardson gif. Uh huh. Gif of the thumbs GIF up or gif of the thumbs up. Yes, I was po- hoping you did that. I'm posting it in the. Oh, I didn't make it, but I found it oh. online. I'm posting awesome. it in the Facebook group. I just don't know if it animates on Facebook. Either way, it's awesome. I just I, got noticed that you added a photo. You know what else should be? You know what else should be gift is or gift is the uh, when uh, Eb hits Richardson over the head and <laughs> Richardson like kind of looks at him in surprise. I thought that yeah. was pretty good too. He didn't say anything. His eyes just went wide. Yeah. You <laughs> <laughs> should have said you hurted me again. <laughs> hurted me. My God, I love Richardson. <laughs> <laughs> Alma and Ellsworth call in George Hurst. The meeting, it, it doesn't go well, shall we say. Ellsworth calls him a murdering cocksucker for what happened at the Comstock. Alma is embarrassed, but she is also realizing for the first time just how strongly Ellsworth loathes this man. He forbids her to do business with Hurst. She is shocked that he would lay down the law in the thoroughfare, and he seems shocked as well. That he did it or that she reacted that way? That he did it. It's almost yeah. like, yeah, you know, he's such a go along to get along kind of guy like he's he's sort of a peacemaker he's friendly he's not antagonistic toward anyone and he's always just sort of deferred to her and i think he's just surprised just how angry that he's become mm-hmm. yeah yeah i was really surprised at how hostile he was and how he just could not contain himself when he was around hearst yeah yeah and i think it surprised him as well mm-hmm Hey, we just saw Jim Beaver recently in uh, Better Call Saul. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, he was selling guns. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty amazing. He was just in a, another episode of Supernatural a couple weeks ago, too. Alma looks stunning in this red dress outfit thing that she's wearing. She, she looks the, good in red. With the brooch yeah. like on her. I wanted her to play the actress Molly Parker. I wanted her to play Melisandre on Game of Thrones. I thought she would be oh, really good. She would have, yeah. That was my dream casting. Hmm. And I wanted Ray Stevenson to play Stannis. <laughs> I was, was basically recasting actors from previous HBO shows. <laughs> Some Cornish miners are in a cell. One miner translate, translates for Seth as the other. Pasco cries. Pasco's friend Jory was killed for talking about organizing. As the cage was coming up from the mines, a supervisor shoved Jory against the wall and the cage cut Jory's legs off. The officials Charlie is speaking with claim it was an accident and they're very sorry. The Cornishman shot a few weeks ago with the gem was talking of organizing also. Pasco is afraid he'll be next. Seth is very sorry, but he doesn't make any promises. It felt weird to just be thrown into the middle of this. I wish they had like shown and not told us what happened. Yeah, but that would have <laughs> taken time. And, and budget. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Still, I was like, where are we? What's happening? Why are they like, who are these people? What's, what's the it was problem? Just, they were just blubbering too. Like, usually we watch the show with the subtitles on because it's just easier to follow it. And there yeah. was no subtitles for all this blubbering. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, I think it's just said speaking Cornish on my subtitles. Oh, did it? Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, it didn't say anything on ours. Yeah, I think if they had shown it, we would have been just as confused because all of a sudden we would have been in a mine shaft with somebody's yeah. life being cut off. Mm. Yeah, and you don't know these people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's they could have started the episode like that, I suppose. Yeah, but I'm glad they didn't. I didn't need to see that. Yeah, 
I, I, I suppose Matt did, though. Matt needed to see I've some I've never music. seen it. <laughs> <laughs> it's something new. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a man losing two legs in a mining accident. Tell me you've never seen something You've never seen like- that? <laughs> it ha- According to George Hurst, it happens, like, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's run of the mill. Yeah, it's just a regular run of the mine. In the mine. <laughs> He was talking about the air change, so I started to look up mining terms and, and whatnot to see if that was actually meant anything. And my best guess is that when the miners go underground and they're digging into rock, it releases gas like methane gas and various other gases. And uh, this is what can cause combustion and explosions in mines. And just the the ventilation is like key. That's like one of the key elements to mining and when the cage comes up like from under the ground, there's like this moment where you stop breathing the air, the stale air from the mines and breathe the fresh air from what's above ground. And they might call that the air change. And that might be the moment where the guard just threw poor Jory against the wall and the guy lost his legs. Awful. Jack walks the camp with Al. Al doesn't want hers to see them together. Nonetheless, Al shows Jack, Mr. Wu boss of the neighborhood and the pigs too, of course. He confesses his hand throbs where Hurst took his finger. Then he takes him to see the Ellsworth house, the Bullock house, and Jack's imagination is stirred by a plot of common land. As they walk, Al is getting angrier and angrier, and Jack decides it's best if they part ways. Hmm. (laughs) So is his finger actually gone now? I thought it was just like all wrapped up and like... Yeah, we talked about it, that it was gone. No, I knew it was gonna go, but is it still on his hand? Is it just like a dead, useless finger right now, or did he get it cut off, or what? Or did it come off at the very beginning, like when it smashed? Did it get smashed or did it get cut off by the side of the... Oh, maybe. The hammer that, you know, it's like a knife almost. It's almost like a... I think it just got chopped off. Okay. I thought it got crushed and then it was just going to get amputated later or something. But yeah, maybe cut off. Well, there's... Yeah, there's two sides to a rock hammer and the it looked like he used the opposite side from the crushing side. Ah. And that that has got a almost a blade on it. Mm-hmm. But it's not very sharp, so it would be very painful. Ooh. Anyways, I want Al to give me a tour of Deadwood. <laughs> I would love it. <laughs> and then it'd just be like, it'd just be like, we started this tour by hell, we'll finish it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you think he was like trying to push himself, like to prove that he wasn't feeling out of sorts or whatever? Or maybe. Or, or maybe, maybe he was just taking big tours. <laughs> maybe he was just taking claim of the camp. Like, no, this is my still my camp, and I will show it to you. Yeah, that could be. That sounds plausible. I liked when they finally got to the hotel and they saw the veranda, and Al just looks up to it and he's like, "That motherfucker! That motherfucker!" <laughs> I know. And Jack's like, "You know what? Um, this was great and all." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. This is not the impression I, first impression I want to give, so we'll split here. Do you think that being a theater person, he has this like self-preservation instinct when he's out like in the West and violent places where it's like, I know I can't defend myself in certain situations, so I know when to leave the room and I know where I'm not wanted. Probably. It's like, this is, this is getting too heated for me. I think he's definitely a survivor. Mm -hmm. As somebody who is caught in he's probably caught in between factions a lot and the best thing to do because you want everybody to be your audience <laughs> is to be friendly towards all i have like four quotes from this just these little t- scenes of 
<laughs> between Jack and Al. Awesome. The doctor expresses his concerns to Trixie about Alma's shifting moods. Then he starts to cough and cough until he coughs up blood and who knows what else. Trixie is shocked and concerned, but he sends her away. Why is this happening? Really random. There's nobody else sick that we know of besides him, is there? Well, he's he also has not been taking care of himself at no. all. No, I mean, We haven't heard much about his drinking lately, have we? I haven't heard much from him at all. Mm. Feels like they haven't really developed aspects of him beyond his abilities as a doctor too much. I feel like the first season was the one where we we saw him the most. And yeah. Kind of, you know. But I'm, I don't want him to die. I hope he doesn't die. Well, we only have one season left with him anyways. Yeah. Less than a season. Yeah. But yeah, I I hope the same as well. I don't want him to die, but. No. Consumption was big back then. Mm-hmm. And he would be—he would be exposed to all kinds of germs. Being a doctor, he could have any number of things. That's kind of crazy to think about. The just you know how doctors even survived back then. Like you'd have to have a really good immune system in order to be a doctor. Because, yep, yep. I have another word for Mel's word of the episode, Mm -hmm. and that is label. How is that spelled? L L A B I L E. Okay. Oh, is this we're we're talking about? All right. Well, I'll have to say the quote. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I the, think the, the doctor we... says, "I'm concerned that her temperament is label." And yes. Trixie says, "I guess that means she's talking through her cunt." Right. <laughs> she she labia. thinks labia. Yeah. yeah. Oh, she misunderstood. Or she's joking. Mm-hmm. I thought she. I think she misunderstood. She didn't seem to be joking. <laughs> She said she seemed like she was really, uh, really self-aware in this scene, like, mm-hmm. like really nervous and self-aware. I don't know what was going on there, but well, label means liable to change, easily altered. Mm. I'm just wondering if these words label la- labia if they're connected, like in their roots. They uh, very well might be. You mean like if somebody's liable to do something, meaning that they're they may do it. It's a possibility, most likely. Did you look up the etymology of it? I couldn't find it, no. Okay. It's, come, it's Latin in origin. <laughs> look up labia. <laughs> slide, flow, slip, transient. I just I just wonder if like this word and labia being that's a female part, like you know how women are always with their shifting moods and how oh, those damn I'm, women. I'm just wondering if there's like a connection between those two words. That's yeah. why they're so similar in Hmm. Hmm. Anyway. So they would blame the labia for, like, shifting moods? Is that what it was? <laughs> it's all that stupid labia. <laughs> it's the labia's fault. <laughs> Seth informs Saul he's going to write up this phony accident and put Hurst on notice. Saul looks concerned, but he doesn't say anything. This is when Trixie comes in the hardware store. She immediately starts ranting about the men, like the doctor, being expected to read their minds. Saul prefers if she smokes outside. She gets very nasty and leaves. <laughs> I like that he just looks like, kind of just looks like a lost little puppy. <laughs> In both cases, he's just like, she's, oh, I don't she, know what to say. She's really bad at communicating. With <laughs> she people. really is. She's like, you should know exactly what I'm talking about and why I'm so angry. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I, well, I, her, her argument is that men are so hard to read and she's not a mind reader. And then she comes in. And what does she expect Seth Saul to be? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. 
They should just get married already. I know. <laughs> Those crazy kids. <laughs> uh, that'll solve all their problems. Yeah. <laughs> Hurst scoffs at Seth's notice. There is no evidence of any crimes being committed, and he doesn't care what patterns Seth finds. And if they are to pursue crimes in the gem, they'll have his guards speak about the throat slit by Dan and Al an episode or so ago. Hurst puts Seth on notice. And Seth did the nose thing at least once. Yeah. Oh, did he? I didn't notice. Yeah, he did. I, yeah, think, he he I think he only did it once. He sniffled, yeah. yeah. Oh. Blazanoff shows Merrick the new doodads on his telegraph machine. He <laughs> has installed a differential duplex, which I think means he can send telegrams at the same time he receives them. <laughs> so he met a girl in Chicago, another member for their ambulators club. <laughs> but she's not there. Is she coming? I don't know. Unless she's think, the lady in the red dress. I don't know. I think she was another subject for the perambulators. Talk oh, okay, about. Yeah. That's oh, what that I think it was. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. Oh, wait, wait, say that again? I thought he was saying that she was another subject for them to deal with when they were walking. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. Talk about. At first I thought, I, I thought, oh, she's joining them. And then I realized... Oh, wait a minute. He's at the beginning of the scene. They were talking about something that they were going to talk about, you know, a subject for our, our evening walk. And at the end, he's saying it, you know, this is another subject for our evening walk for us to talk about this, this woman I met. I think this seems adorable. It is. It's like, let's, you, you talk in a low voice and I'll talk in a high voice. <laughs> I am talking in my high voice and I am talking in my low voice. <laughs> and I can't understand what you're saying when I'm talking at the same <laughs> and time. I am you talking so in my high voice. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how science works. <laughs> science! <laughs> Folks, I looked up differential duplex, found a paragraph about it. It's confusing because it's all scientific mumbo jumbo. I put it in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Go to the show notes. You can find that paragraph and a link to all this fun stuff about telegraph machines and various duplexes and quadruplexes and <laughs> other plexes, diplexes and polyplexes and phonoplexes and all kinds of other shit. It's oh. science. Who cares? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> we go to the Bella Union. Cy is meeting with Hearst. Cy finds his previous demand, 5% or he'd circulate that letter by Wilcott, reprehensible. He touches his Bible as proof. Hearst knows Cy never had such a letter because he has a letter from Wolcott detailing how Cy disposed of the bodies in the Chazami. Would you like to see this letter? Verify its authenticity? No, that's all right. I don't need to see the letter. Hearst calls Cy out on his bullshit, and then he offers Cy a job. <laughs> that escalated really fast. <laughs> yeah, it did. I don't know. I'm curious to see how the role of sniveling Toadie will fit on Psy. <laughs> He's usually the guy in charge. He's going to turn into EB. Yeah. It doesn't seem like it'd be something he'd tolerate for long. Seems like something well, he'd fuck up. Yeah, that's what I think he would. I think he's going to mess it up because his, his ego is going to get in the way, but uh, well, he'll try. It's just nothing. I just. I can't. Like, nothing. Um. It doesn't seem like anything bad's ever going to happen to Hearst because we know he lives on. He lives on. He's quite successful. So it's like Sai's never going to get the he better. He could very well just leave, though. Doesn't mean that he has to stay there forever. Mm. They can right. get the better of him, and he can go somewhere else to make his fortune. True. Yeah. Johnny is fishing for information about the theater dandy. 
<laughs> L defends him. He's a class act, although I can't speak to his talent as an actor because I don't go to plays. You know that on Tuesdays he has amateur night, including talented farters. <laughs> so they weren't. They were. This is a thing. America's Got Talent, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Seth was stymied by Wu when he went to fetch the Cornishman's body. Seth is making motions against Hearst, and Al wonders what good will come of confronting Hearst now. I agree with Al. Mm-hmm. If you're gonna, if you're gonna go after Hearst, you ought to have proof. You. This yeah. is reckless. This is. They're not ready yet. No. Outside, Seth and Alma exchange glances. Alma smiles. Very steamy glances, might I add. And in my notes, I wrote, "She is awesome." This episode, her abortion did her wonders. <laughs> More people should get abortions. They'd look better. <laughs> I have down that Hearst looked horrible, though. Yeah. No. And did is it, it my imagination, or is Hearst looking worse and worse? I didn't think so. Mm. He was a more awful person, but well, well, it just no. I mean, it seemed <laughs> like it's, his face looked really haggard, and and I mean, when he first showed up, he was you know he was pretty. Let me rephrase that though, about saying that he's a more awful person. He was showing his true colors. Wow. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. This time they they actually had a meaning for the uh, for the title. Yeah. Always oh, been there like a month, a month and a half, and. He's just sick and tired of dealing with all these stupid people who have, like, their own opinions and junk. Ugh, how dare they? They're so backward. Like, I just, why can't they just do what I tell them to do? Like, I don't (laughs) understand. Like, why don't they get it? It's it's so (laughs) annoying and tiresome. Though he really, I mean, in this, between Seth's scene and this scene, and then, of course, his final speech to Cy, um, or, no, to... Whoever it was he was talking to at the end. Um, I mean, it really showed that he needs one step beyond them doing just what he says. He needs, he needs people to be bowing and crawling and, you know, he, he has a real power thing going on. It's a lot more than just the gold. Jack likes the look of the Shazami. Joni <laughs> is watering vegetables. She shoes him away. Everybody <laughs> gets shooed this episode. Well, not everybody, two people, but. <laughs> Wonder what he liked about it. I don't know. Like the problem. It was an empty space where he could, might be an empty space where he could uh, put his theatrical company. I find it interesting that Joni's repurposed it for, as a, like a, a garden area and like all this stuff. It's funny. Well, that's where the kids plant their beets. Yeah, it's funny. And she, I'm assuming she shoes him away because she thinks that he's like a pervert or like a, a John. Like he's, he's yeah. come for horrors. She's yeah. like, we don't do that anymore. Go away. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. funny. There are but kids I- here. Put your penis away. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! <laughs> Madam, I assure you, I am. I am no degenerate. <laughs> and he does. He does uh, tip his hat to everybody. Oh, it's great. He does. Yeah, I assumed when he was looking at that that he was looking for some place for his theater company. Yeah, he's shopping around. Yeah. Well, this is a fun sight. This is Alma back at the hotel where she was for two seasons. Mm. She's come to pay another visit to George Hurst. Mm. This time, Ellsworth has not accompanied her. She apologizes for her husband's behavior. This is her proposal. 49% ownership of her mine for 5% of his holdings, and Hurst can transport his ore as long as he does not impede her operations. Hurst refuses this arrangement. He will not be a minority participant in Alma's operation, and he finds the idea emasculating. 
However, he will buy her out. She refuses. She will not hear his offer, and then he tells her she indulges herself. He basically threatens to kill her. Mm. Or as he puts it later, he was going to rape her, mm. which is kind of obvious because he, he smells her. Could he get away yeah. with that? He smells her. It was so gross. I'm just wondering yep. if, if he could get away with that, if he actually went through with it. Like What, raping her? Yeah. Like, yeah. is he powerful enough that th- that would have no consequences? Mm. Probably. Hmm. Killing her, no, but raping her, probably. Hmm. Because she would be blamed for it. Yeah, yeah, probably. Well, look how she's dressed. Yeah. Uh, Bavavoom. I mean, Ellsworth, <laughs> Ellsworth basically tells her that, yeah. you know, the old thing of what you would almost got what you deserved. Yeah. Um, <laughs> victim blaming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She was in a man's room by herself. What did she expect to have happen? Mm. She was unescorted. She obviously was looking for, for sex from him, and he just gave it to her. Mm. If she didn't want it, it's her own dumb fault for making him think she did, and probably she got went there looking for it. And now she's upset. I'm sure Seth would have went on a murderous rampage, though. <laughs> oh, and he was no. saying, like, yeah, you don't have an escort or anything, but she still had, like, Seth was still kind of watching out for her and stuff. She didn't know it, but... He took note that she had gone in there. Yeah. yeah. He's still keeping an eye out for her. I, I was actually surprised because when she left there with Ellsworth, I thought she was going to get Seth because Seth was supposed to be in charge of, had been in charge of her financial dealings. Holdings, yeah. Yeah, her financial holdings um, with her, you know, and helping her with them. And I had assumed she would go get Seth and, you know, but I guess they've discontinued that as well. Hey, here's a tip. Podcast listeners, uh, Hooplecast pro tip, don't smell people. It's creepy. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I agree with that tip. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I'm glad you agree. <laughs> yeah, he was he was so creepy in that. Oh, he's all up in her. Oh. All up he in there. Creepy, like, there's a couple more times where he says things in this episode that's just like, ugh. Yeah, it's really gross. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I guess it makes it even grosser because he's he's acting boyish now you know and almost like he almost becomes relatable in a way and then and then he does this stuff and it's like oh it's kind of off-putting you mean he's acting boyish with his he's acting auntie. boyish with his aunt you know he's kind of it's humanizing him a little bit and then he's doing this gross stuff but i suppose that's probably also kind of a human thing to do this kind of stuff not not a good thing not a good human thing but it's it's a human thing Back outside, Seth watches for Alma. He sees that she's distressed. They share a moment. Seth knows what's wrong. It's fucking hers, that murderous cocksucker. Hey, we have another word of the episode. Her says it twice. Capon. On, yeah. I think that is, but... Well, from context, you can kind of guess that it's like a eunuch, but... Yeah. Specifically, it's a castrated rooster. Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> They're supposed to be, they're a delicacy for some group. It's a very, it ends up being That's a very right. big. That's big where I've heard that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it ends up being but a that big like medieval kind of like stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The process of turning a rooster into a capon is known as caponization. The process <laughs> happens between six and 20 weeks of age, depending on the producer and the chicken breed. Heritage chicken producers remove the testes of the cockerel surgically, while larger producers tend to induce caponization hormonally with the use of estrogen implants. 
Seriously? The result in either case is a neutralization of the sex hormones, which normally develops in roosters. As a result, the bird becomes much more mellow in temperament, losing the aggression commonly associated with roosters. This makes capons easier to handle and also changes the way in which their meat matures. Capons have more tender, fatty flesh because they are not as active as roosters are. They also tend to taste less gamey because they do not develop sex hormones, which can impact the flavor of the flesh. In addition, their bodies undergo smaller physical changes, including the development of a smaller head, comb, and waddle. Around the farmyard, a capon is much safer than a rooster because the birds are not aggressive. These birds can also be kept together without the issue of potential fighting. In the kitchen, roast capon is moist, flavorful, and very tender since the flesh starts out tender and the higher fat content acts as a natural basting agent. A high-quality capon has a dramatically different flavor than traditional roast chickens. Somebody should have made Hearst into a capon. He'd be much more likable. (laughs) (laughs) He'd probably just overcompensate. He's already overcompensating. No, he'd be like, it's all good, man. I'm I'm mellow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, when he said, do you mistake me for a capon? She should have said, well, you you do seem uh, more fatty and juicier than normal. (laughs) He would just turn into Varys from Game of Thrones. Yeah. Yeah. Just scheming and stuff. <laughs> now it is night at the hotel dining room. Rita Sue and the Countess compliment Aunt Lou on her cooking. Telegram for Langriche. He doesn't tip, but the Countess does. A dollar. Too much. The telegram <laughs> reads, Chesterton and Bellegarde are in transit from Cheyenne. A fancy-looking woman in a red dress comes in for dinner. Aunt Lou says, Fisher ham, and don't pay attention to the menu. And then she leads Richardson away by the hand, which is very cute. That's great. <laughs> that, that just... Yeah, I love that, you know, him following her around and her just, you know, taking his hand. Come on. I hope she takes good care of Richardson. I hope she protects him from Eby's abuse. Assaults. Yeah. (laughs) We're running out of time for- I'm uh, really hoping she hits Eb over the head. Like, whenever he, like, says stupid stuff. I'd love to see her beat up on Eb With a frying pan. Get out of my kitchen! Yes! (laughs) Please! Oh, yeah. We're running out of time to be introduced to whoever this character is that's played by a Twin Peaks actor. Yeah. Oh yeah. Do you Must think be in the theater company? Mm, it's one you of think these so? Two. Chesterton and Bellegarde? Yeah, yeah, maybe. Maybe. I hope so. Mm-hmm. Well, I think at least one of those characters is, is implied to be gay because uh, Rita Sue says he's delayed because he suffered the tortures of the damned, and the Countess says the damned was from Fort Kearney. So I think what they're saying is they got they went to Fort Kearney and. He, the, one of the these people got like hooked up with one of the soldiers, oh, uh, and that's why they're delayed. Oh, that's my guess. Interesting. I wouldn't have been guessed to interpret it that way. Yeah, I wouldn't have either. Alma tells Ellsworth that she felt foolish reading her proposal to Hurst. That Hurst grinned at her like a jackal and said that she mistook his nature. She admits she did, and Ellsworth has his "I told you so" moment. Ellsworth becomes angry when she implies Hurst restrained her, then horribly says if he had killed her, she would have deserved it. Mm. And she throws it back at him, why would I have deserved it? And then he says softly, I only wanted to protect you. And she says, you can't. Mm. You can't. Specifically, you can't. Yeah. (laughs) Like it's an insult. My baby daddy could. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Their relationship is kind of (laughs) doomed. Oh but yeah. If they don't if they don't if they don't change the way they're talking to each other or like apologize or do something like it's just going to be horrible. They're just going to be like raising Sophia in like a horrible <laughs> environment. Yeah. 
Super nice house, though. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, very nice. Beautiful inside and out. (laughs) Not a great neighborhood. Does he... Is it specifically that uh, if he had killed her? Because I I had assumed during that 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 it was assaulting her that was, you know, that was the expected thing. And we said, got what you deserved. Although he's been talking about him being a murderer, so I would guess it would be anything that he did to her. He would look at it as being what she deserved because he had been trying to tell her what he was and Alma wouldn't listen. Yeah. He was warning her, but in vague ways. Yeah. Like, I felt like he could have done a better job. Yeah. Like, she didn't even know about the history, really. It sounded, yeah. Yeah, like, he didn't really, and he should have It also her. sounded like she didn't want to hear it, though. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that too, yeah. He could have tried, and I don't think it would have changed anything. Yeah. Because yeah. she was very dismissive of him, yeah. you know. She had her, she had figured out her thing, and she was going to do it. And I get it that, you know, she's trying to stand on her own two feet and she wants to prove herself, you know, to be independent and all of that. But at the same time, you know, she's letting her her ego and everything really get in the way of so many things. Yeah. Hearst is eating dinner in the kitchen. Hearst tells Aunt Lou that he hates this camp, adjusting to other people's stupidity and backwards thinking. He doesn't care what other people think of him, and he'd rather be by himself ta- talking to the earth. Is this the scene where he doesn't talks about his wife, too? That he doesn't care what she thinks other than telling him where to stick it? <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was kind of gross. <laughs> and he's, is this where he also talks about how he's the, the boy the earth talked to and stuff? Yeah. Yeah, and she says, that's your Indian name. Which like, just makes remember. it so, Yeah, which yeah. just makes it... I'm sure he goes on about it all the time. Yes. Oh, yeah. But, uh... It just makes makes it seem like he's some sort of like prophetize prof, proselytizing. No, pro, not proselytize. Prof. I don't know. Prophet. Some sort of prophet. Some sort of chosen one. And like like in some other movie, like where you just be like, oh, he's the the boy the Earth talks to. Oh, he's going to be big things, and he just turns out to be evil bastard. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It just reminds me of the the Simpsons when they had the film contest and Mr. Burns like cast himself in the role of Ben Hur or Moses or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, oh my god, can you believe this guy? Yeah. And Aunt Lou, of course, she can't really say what she thinks. She can only inflate his ego. Yeah. We go to dinner at the Bullock household. Martha makes oh mighty god. smooth potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this was great. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> must be a terrible cook. That's all I could think during all of that. Why? Because if the only thing good that you can say about the dinner is that the potatoes are really, really smooth, it, it makes me think that it's not very good. She's like a horrible cook. Oh, I was, I was just interpreting this as there's no conversation. Like everyone's in their own headspace, and Charlie is just like trying to think of something to say to. Yeah, I mean, they definitely stop with was, the awkwardness, and he's like, "Yeah, potatoes yeah. are good." <laughs> it was potatoes it are was good. Def- yeah, it was definitely awkward, and I agree wholeheartedly that Charlie was trying to find something to say, but it was like when he kept saying about smooth potatoes, and everyone was like, yep, <laughs> they're smooth potatoes. It's like, okay, they're not so good far potatoes, far. they're smooth potatoes. He phrased it poorly. She, she's a good cook. Okay. We know, we know that her tea is weak. She makes weak-ass tea, but I think <laughs> she's a good cook. 
Seth says that for their offices to mean something, they'll have to uh, sell offers past laws. And Charlie's outraged laws! What? Yeah. But I disagree with Charlie. Char- see, Charlie thinks that laws are just another way for like people in power to control them. But like good laws? No, they empower the lesser people. They should offer protections against people like George Hurst. Yeah. Otherwise, they can act with like impunity. Why is he a Why is he a deputy if he doesn't respect laws? <laughs> well, I think we've talked about how he's basically a glorified bouncer. Yeah, he just likes to fight. <laughs> but it also does kind of indicate where people are coming from at the time. That you know, just having laws, they've had bad experiences other places. Yeah. Hurst explains to Sai that Sai's role is to be an obedient dog. Disapproval will be meted by a smack on the snout. Unlike Wolcott, Hurst checks his impulses to murder the sheriff and rape Mrs. Ellsworth, because it will hurt his long-term interests. Sai appears amenable to these uh, stipulations that he will be a dog, that it will answer to George Hurst. Do you think that, that, I mean, my feeling with Sai always is that, you know, he's ready to agree to everything with... And in inside, he always feels like he can get around it to do something for his own best interests. Yeah, you know it. Yeah, I think we alluded to this scene earlier. It's very disturbing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he really does, you know, when you talk about true colors. Yeah. Yeah, the only thing that stops him from rape and murder is that it will hurt his bank account. Yeah. He likes money more than he likes murdering people. What about what about like wanting to be a decent person and like do the right thing? Mm. <laughs> Obviously, yeah, that doesn't really yeah. come into it. Yeah. yeah, respecting human life and other people, and yeah. Well, as he said, you know, the only, <laughs> <Hello? laughs> the only people he wants to be around are people who are you know total totally subservient to him, mm-hmm. um, and will do whatever he says as soon as he says it. In Chinatown, Aunt Lou is gambling at Mahjong and winning. She is also smoking and speaking Chinese. She describes Hearst as a badger, kicking up gold nuggets, which he is past needing, but he likes to say the number to astonish the black folks in the fields. So uh, she's not quite as subservient as Hearst may think she is. And isn't isn't Wu watching? Yeah. It's like it's like he's watching and he's like, oh, she's like against against uh, Hearst, but Wu can't possibly know that. He doesn't know any of the language. He does. He understands it. He just can't speak it. You think? I think so. Uh, I think he understands quite a bit more than... If it, it, it was shot like he was going to take this information back to... Uh, uh, I, I think don't... it's kind of obvious that if she is, uh, you know, subservient by day and gambling and talking up a storm by night, it's kind of obvious that, you know, she's putting on a show for Hearst. Maybe. So yeah. to me, I feel like he feels like maybe there's an end to, you know, the downfall of Hearst or whatever. Yeah, I mean, he may not, I don't think he understands most of what she's saying. Yeah. Um, he might understand a couple words here and there at this yeah. point, but uh, but he can get the gist of what's going on with her. Well, he's a very good, you know, at people watching. Yeah. <laughs> so... He yeah. probably sees the way that she acts with him, and then when she's by herself, she acts a different way. Yeah. I find this scene endlessly amusing. Um, yes. 
Well, for, first of all, there's the dual like nature of like her personality of when she's with George Hurst and when she's alone, but also just the fact that she's a woman who is winning at you know this Chinese game. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, which shows that she is smart, capable, strategic. Um, she's funny. She's brash. So she has a personality. It you just you see you see her true colors. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. I wonder. Yeah. I, now I'm wondering how you gamble it, Mahjong. Oh, I can tell you, but you don't want to spend all that time now. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's it's literally it, Mahjong is like Jim Jin Rami, mm-hmm. and um, all the tiles are in Chinese. So I mean the originals. So she has to know. I mean, it's a matching game, so you don't yeah, no, have no. to know what each one means, but you do need to be pretty familiar with them. And quite honestly, I suppose it'd be like cards, playing cards. There's different card games, just like there'd be different Mahjong games, I guess. Not that I've seen. No. Mahjong well, you, know, you can play like the Mahjong tiles online and you don't, there's no gambling there. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, but that's not Mahjong. The ones I've seen online are not Mahjong at all. It's just using the tiles. You're talking about the Mahjong solitaire thing yeah. where you're just, yeah, that's not yeah. Mahjong. That's what I mean, that it's kind of like playing cards that you can have different games for. No. I mean, maybe there is, but I when I was hanging around Chinese playing Mahjong many years ago, there was one game, and it's it was the old women who you had to really watch out for. The guys did not get anywhere near their game, because it was like, it went so fast, and the money would show up on the table at the end of each hand, you know, if you want to call it a hand. I, it's not a hand, but I've forgotten what they call it. Meld. And the drawers, there are drawers in the mahjong table, and whoever won would slap that money into that drawer so fast, close that drawer so fast, and had to have their hand ready to play again within seconds. They they were just, you know, they were not fooling around. Um, yeah, gambling is a big part of mahjong. A lot of money goes well, Not in the online game, it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> but again, you're probably looking at the solitaire version yeah, of it, yeah, which exactly. is not not how Mahjong actually is. No, it's it's not even like, close. Yeah, it's like it's, uh, Rummy, where you're trying yeah. to make sets of right, exactly. different combinations of different tiles, mm-hmm. and right. you can go for more complex hands, mm-hmm. and then those will give you like more points when you score at the end, or you can go maybe for simpler things, and you basically you start off with you have thirteen tiles and you're always drawing the fourteenth tile, looking hoping that the fourteenth one will be the one that completes whatever arrangement of tiles that you're going for, and then you throw the fourteenth one that you don't want back into the pile and like Sounds you like can someone can grab the fourteenth one if in certain circumstances and pick it up and add it to their hand and Yeah. Think if you pick up the one from the from the center that someone discards, you put it in front of you and then it's worth fewer points than if you just got it randomly by drawing it yourself. Mm. First of all, I became really interested in Mahjong after watching one of my favorite movies, The Joy Luck Club. Mm-hmm. And also I read the book, but the movie is actually better than the book. It's one of those rare instances where the, I think the movie's better than the book. Mm. Um, and I also went through this phase where I wanted to collect tarot decks, not for divin- divin- divination purposes, but for the, for the purposes of the, art- the artwork. Mm. I really liked 
just like Claire likes to draw different tarot decks. I wanted to collect the artwork from the tarot decks. It's nice. And the bookstore that I used to go to, that everyone back in Toledo used to go to Thackeray's, it was like an institution. No longer exists, sadly. Now it's like a Costco. But they had a really nice um, tarot occult section. Amongst the tarot decks, there was this book called The Fortune Teller's Mahjong, which was, you know, how to tell fortunes using the tiles. But also, it came with a set of cards, and the cards were based on the tiles, and they were fully illustrated, and you could play the game of Mahjong with the cards. And I would take them to school with me, and my friends and I, like during our lunch break, would play Mahjong using the cards, not the tiles. And that was quite a lot of fun. Do you know which version of Mahjong it was? It was because... the Chinese version. Okay, Be- only because um, there were the older women who you didn't get near their their game but the younger women would let would let you in and and teach you how to play and so for a little while i was being taught how to play mm-hmm. and one of the things that they kept saying is you know the, the the jewish women play mahjong but it's different they do this and they were they would be talking about how i don't know how they play it's different and all of this and uh, I didn't didn't know anything about it. I was just, you know, listening to them talk about how weird this other group of people would play this other this game that was called the Mahjong, but mm-hmm. it was had been changed and had all these other things involved with it. So there's a line in the Joy Luck Club where one of the Chinese the older ladies asks the young Chinese American lady, "Have you ever played Mahjong?" And she says, "Well, I played once with some Jewish friends in college." And the lady goes, "Jewish." Jewish mahjong, Chinese is not the same thing. It's entirely different. No strategy. Yeah, that, was, <laughs> that was pretty much what what the Chinese women that I was playing with were saying. But I had never come across mahjong. I mean, I'd heard of it, but so I didn't know. A friend of our family, she is a Jewish lady. She plays mahjong. She showed me once her mahjong card because this is something that is unique to American mahjong. Every year, they come out with this card that has uh, like the hands for the year, like annually, like these are the hands you, you need to, to make to win the game. And every year it's new. Oh. It's brand new and they have to pay like $10 or whatever to get what? the new card every year. That's weird. Yeah, it's something that's like exclusive to American Mahjong and whatever the, um, I guess, whatever the governing body of Mahjong in the United States is. <laughs> the Mahjong Council of the United it's States. <laughs> National Mahjong League. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it says, uh, it uses a card of standard hands against which all games are played. These cards are changed annually. Uses more tiles, notably the Joker. The game is started with Charleston, or the passing of three unwanted tiles from one player to another. So there's a couple little quirky differences. I do know that in Chinese Mahjong, like standard Chinese Mahjong, there's like 80 different combinations of hands that you can make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. The passing the three sounds like hearts. Yeah, it's fun. Like you can, I recommend uh, everyone try and learn it. I had a good time playing it. Luckily, we weren't gambling at at my table because you know I was a newbie. I didn't know what I was doing, and and it just wasn't a gambling table. There were some others that were gambling tables. I think it would be fun to become really good at mahjong, and I could take the train into the city, into Chinatown, and play mahjong with the Chinese men <laughs> and smoke cigars. Oh yeah. And gamble. Yeah. 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 I I just, I enjoyed watching. I enjoyed going from table to table and watching the different 
you know, because the guys were much more laid back. A lot of them were playing poker instead of mahjong, and uh, and the young women were having a good time with you know just friendly game type thing. Those old ladies, oh my God, they were they were ruthless. You didn't get near their table, and they were just like sending the kids for food and stuff. They weren't getting up from that table. They weren't getting going anywhere. The uh, fortune tellers mahjong that I had bought like twenty years ago, it became very popular when it went out of print, and copies of it were like a couple hundred dollars on eBay. Wow! But they actually did a reprint of it, and uh, it's available now again, once again. And I will like post a link to it on the Facebook group if you wanted to pick up a copy of that. It's like twenty dollars for the book and the cards that you can use to play the game with, and the cards are really nicely illustrated. So it'd be a fun little game that you could keep in your cupboard. <laughs> she gets the winning hand, 13 orphans. That would be a uh, two unique bamboos, two unique character tiles, two unique dots, one of each of the three dragons, one each of the four wins, and a 14th tile to complete the pair. I briefly said last time we recorded that this episode had an alternate title, supposedly. It says this in another transcript that I found, but I couldn't find any evidence of this anywhere. But the alternate title was Clatter Them Sparrows, which would refer to this mahjong scene Mm -hmm. because they would be clattering the tiles, and some of the tiles are sparrows. And Aunt Lou says, Clatter Them Goddamn Sparrows. Whatever that is. True color is better. Alice speculates he might be gay since he hasn't yet slit her throat. Langree says ambitious men are not comfortable men. Al says he's not ambitious, but Jack calls bullshit on that. Then he slaps Al on the ass and says, don't misinterpret that. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. I thought it was interesting that Al says that he's ready to burn the camp down if he needs to. He doesn't want to, but he's ready to do it. He says that, but like Jack says, no, you're not. You built a, you built a lot here. Yeah, but I think it's, I think Al is really, I mean, this whole thing with Hearst, he is getting his head, you know, ready to do real war. I think he's, you know, he's kind of gathering his steam here. And, and if that means leaving everything in ashes, he's getting his head around to being ready to do that. I don't know if he would or not, but that's where his head is right now. I really like watching Al get slapped on the ass. <laughs> 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 if that oh there should be mm. i'll have to make one i have some comments from david milch regarding al's current situation and i really like how he connects al and how he feels now with how al felt as a child when he was abandoned by his mother so quote in the third season swearingen's middle finger is cut off by george hurst and his inaction in response to that is inexplicable to him it haunts him he knows he's going to have to go to war and he can't quite figure out the operative dynamic between him and hurst what haunts him about his experience with Hearst is not that he lost his finger, but that he was helpless, that someone was holding him from behind. This sense of helplessness is one way he has dislocated his feeling of betrayal by his mother for leaving him at an orphanage so she could go suck prick. Mm. Poor Al. That's heavy. That's it. That's the app. So it is. It's a good episode. Right. Let's uh, review your predictions. Carol predicted... True Colors had something to do with Hearst's obsession with the color, something to do with revealing Hearst's true personality and mining interests. Wow, that sounds pretty good, Carol. Yeah, wow. That sounds pretty on the money. Yeah. <laughs> Matt predicted someone drops a facade, maybe Andy Kramed. He comes to finish the job of killing Cy. He's not really a preacher. Also, everyone is really a purple people eater. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Mel predicted that Cindy Lauper is going to come from the future, taking pictures with her Polaroid camera to show everyone their true colors. <laughs> because the world's in black and white. <laughs> mm-hmm. I am such a hooplehead. <laughs> <laughs> I did not have true colors. The song rang through my head last week because I don't really know that song, but I did have that Ian McShane song. <laughs> oh my from God. the. So good. <laughs> From, that I played at the end part of our last recording. God, it was so it was so eighties. <laughs> so great. It was oh. fantastic. Yeah, it was. My favorite part was when he goes, Things are gonna get easier. Life's a little bit a breezier. And he says, A breezier. <laughs> <laughs> so cheesy. It was very cheesy. It was great though. Mm. And for our miscellaneous predictions, I asked you I asked you to predict how many new characters we would meet. Matt and Carol both said two. Mel said three. I counted four. Yeah. Damn you, Mel. I win. Mel wins. <laughs> Mel wins. Yes. I mean, unless you wanted to count uh, Pasco, <laughs> the, the Cornishman. I still win. And I think that's really the only. He still wins no matter what. Yeah. She, she still wins. Wow. Let's do feedback. Uh, first one is from Harold. And Carol, I'll have you read this one. Okay. The centerpiece of this episode was Alma's second meeting with Hearst. It is a magnificent scene, perfectly written and performed. Watching this with modern eyes, it is like Alma's Alma's is annoyed with Ellsworth for mansplaining about Hearst. She was similarly (laughs) curt with the doctor earlier in the episode, when she felt that he was infantilizing her about her medication. When the doc tells her that she is recovering well, she tells him that she was pleased to find that her own judgments were reliable. I think she takes encouragement from that to trust her own judgment later in the episode, to push ahead and to dismiss Ellsworth's warning as a lack of trust in her capabilities because she was is a woman. No question Ellsworth was patronizing when he attempted to forbid Alma from meeting with Hearst, but I think part of that was that he got tongue-tied with anger and frustration just thinking about Hearst. It would have been better if instead of insulting Alma and calling her a fool, he instead walked her through her proposal and explained to her why Hearst would be likely to reject it. I can see how, for a man of Hearst's time, the idea of being a partnership where he was subservient to a woman would be out of the question. Having said that, his tirade was terrifying, and Molly Parker's reaction to it was perfect. Within the space of a few seconds, she goes from being pleased at herself to being like a child getting an earful from an abusive daddy and knowing that anything could happen next. Hearst's admission that he wanted to kill Bullock and rape Miss Ellsworth was one of the most chilling lines in the series. When will anyone on this show learn not to enter Hearst's room with a second? Hearst has said that he doesn't care about the money. He cares about the color. I wish we could have heard his counteroffer so that we could gauge how true that was. Was he going to make a market value offer in order to gain control of Alma's claim, or was he going to try and pick it up at a discount? What made Alma suddenly want to deal with Hearst? Her near-death experience last week? It would have been nice if they had a scene revealing her thought process. Bottom line, this is another situation where a lawyer would have been helpful in this Oh, Harold. (laughs) (laughs) You should travel back in time, Harold. Lawyers could have negotiated a mutually beneficial deal without anyone almost getting killed or raped. Whatever happened to all those lawyers who wanted to try Jack McCall's case? What was the point of putting Hearst on notice? Either you have enough evidence to make an arrest or you don't, Seth. 
Don't rouse a sleeping tiger until you're ready to act. Aunt Lou is a great addition to the show. I love the side that she brings out of Hearst. It feels like we have time traveled and are watching master and slave dynamic. I also love seeing her getting a chance to vent while being a cigar-chomping, trash-talking, mondong badass. <laughs> awesome. Ryan Cox is in this show. Anytime you add one of the greatest actors working to a show, it is a good thing. We've heard the name Langrish several times so far in the Reader's Theater. I give this 9 out of 10 smiling jackals. Have we? Mm. Remember? Hmm. Thank you, Harold. It may have been referred to, yeah, Langrish Theater. He's got a better memory than I do, anyways. I do. He has much better than I do. I, <laughs> I'm i terrible with names to begin with, but... I suppose he is a lawyer, after all. Yeah, so he likes to remind us, they're indispensable. If only we had them <laughs> everywhere all the time, they would just be so much better. <laughs> Harold, I want to see you dress up in an old-timey outfit to travel back in time. Oh, do that for Halloween, Harold. Aw, I like it. <laughs> I don't know. I have a feeling that the lawyers wouldn't have fared very well with Hearst. Um, I mean, yeah, I guess what saying Hearst should have a lawyer and she should have a lawyer and the two lawyers should be working it out and take the personalities out of it. But I don't think um, he spends a lot of time talking about the scene with Almond Hearst. And that definitely is like one of maybe the oh, key yeah. scene of the episode. And I did think that Molly Parker's performance was fantastic his was as well i just yeah. i loved her like enthusiasm like i put this proposal together all by myself i can't wait to share it with you yeah <laughs> and he's like yeah, are you so fucking proud. kidding me yeah do yeah. you think that w was their scene before or after his scene with bullock it was after it was after it was after do you think that contributed to how nasty he was with alma probably if not well, for it if not for Seth, yeah, well, I guess, but I I think maybe if he hadn't been just so uh, enraged by what Seth was, was doing, he would have been like, well, that's a nice proposal. Uh, go fuck yourself. Goodbye. But he really took it to a whole other level. I don't know. I mean, he might just be, you know, one of these people that it takes, you know, outrage at not being kowtowed to. To such a level, and we haven't seen him with women before, have we? Other than, I mean, there was, you know, Aunt Lou, uh, but he doesn't consider her a woman anyway. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think we've seen him with women. We've just, so... Yeah, he basically says that the relationship with his wife is just, like, if she wants to have sex with me, fine, but I don't want to really talk to her about anything else, and she doesn't want to talk to me, so... Yeah. That's what it seems like. So he doesn't seem to really care about women or care about people anyways. I mean, it could very well be, especially considering that, um, what's his name? Wolcott, was it Wolcott? Yeah, Francis Wolcott. Yeah, considering that Wolcott seemed to think that, that uh, he was okay with Wolcott's treatment of women, um, could very well be that, you know, that this is kind of his default um, thing that if a woman actually dares to defy him or tr act as though she is in any way equal to him, that he's just totally outraged and, and ready to do some kind of violence to her. For our next bit of feedback, this comes from Nucha. So have you read this one, Mel? 
push over. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry I didn't write in last week. I was all distracted by my co-hosts. Okay. <laughs> I, I think she had um, she had her Beyond the Wall po- uh, co-hosts in Canada with her. Or she came, uh-huh. I think, yeah, she went to Niagara Falls with them. That's maybe cool. I That's saw cool. on the Facebook group. Yeah, okay. I saw, I've, yeah. Okay. A they few have- quick, oh, sorry. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> I apologize. I apologize. A few quickies about I am not the fine man. Seth and Martha are being cute. He's really playing. She's really trying. Ellsworth, Jim's, Jim Beaver's acting is heartbreaking. Normally, I hate the near-death pregnant woman story, but this one was compelling, and it made me feel for everyone involved. Jane was amazing, as always. We didn't see her this episode. Mm-mm, not at all. No, we didn't. Yeah. I love her with kids, and I love how kids love her. I also love the little in-between with her and Martha. Swearingen and Hurst. Wow, that's crazy. I don't like seeing Al being on the bottom now. Odd, since I would have loved it one day, but I can't wait for him to get back on top. I think we've all had that kind of mm-hmm. revelation. Like, yeah, you go back, you listen to our early episodes, and you, you guys are like, "I hate Al. He's awful. He's a monster." And now it's like, oh, "I love Al. He's so funny." Yeah, yeah. colors. This was a fun episode, and I like how last week's lead in. Oh, last week's led into this. Alma was so happy in the beginning. It was great to see her like that. I like that she's learning to deal with the doc, pushing past their past. <laughs> I even liked the moment she had with Seth. A bit of Salma going on there. I ached for Ellsworth because he knew what was up, but instead of trusting someone who she married because she trusted him with everything, instead of... Tr- oh my god, the sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm trying to make sense of it. Instead of trusting someone who she married because she trusted him with everything, instead of trusting his judgment, she thought she could do it all. And that made me sad, not because I don't think she shouldn't try to do it all, but because the time she lives in and the man she's up against, she can't. Mm-hmm. Can we have Hurst killed? I <laughs> agree. I love that too. <laughs> Farnham was an MRA before it was cool. Right white men who aren't fat in are the oppressed. Sigh. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, you're, well, we'll get to it. That's one of my quotes. <laughs> Yeah. I like Aunt Lou. I like how she treats Richardson. I like her playing Mahjong too. But I'm afraid she's going to be killed by Wu. Hurst can't have someone speaking his language. I want Hurst killed and Aunt Lou to stay, but I don't see that happening. Poor Seth. He's too honest for this town. (laughs) That was blood the doc coughed up, right? TB? I felt for Trixie. How can you know Trixie cares? She gets upset and swears at everyone. (laughs) If the doc dies, who will take care of all the whores? Yeah. I think the theater guy will be interesting. I like how he relates to everyone so far. Only three episodes in, and I think this may be the best season yet. I'm already mad that this is the last season. Hope you all liked it. Mel, please take me off your murder list. Done and done, Nutty. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Until next time. Mm, You think Wu is going to kill Aunt Lou? No. No. I don't think so. I I don't really see it. But no, I, I don't know. I, I've surprised before. I liked your interpretation more that he he will see her possibly as approachable, like in yeah. an avenue or something. Yeah, that's what I think. Also, she doesn't. I mean, do we really know if she speaks Chinese or does she just know a couple sayings? A I think she yeah. just knows a couple words. Yeah, yeah. That, 
Yeah, I figured she probably. When you speak mahjong, when you speak, when you when you play mahjong, you know, you can't be helped really. Get to learn the game. Get to learn a few words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure she knows. You know, words and if she was living in San Francisco before, there's I think there's was a pretty big Chinese population there, anyways. So. She's introduced in this episode as like that mammy character, like <laughs> yeah. from Gone with the Wind. She's sort of yep. the the servant uh, of upper crust white people, and yet she just reveals this other dimension to herself. Is that what the Gone with the Wind character is like? No, no, no. she's like isn't she very um? She's just more like a bad conge- stereotype, sort of congenial and kind of like. Doesn't really have her own story. Yeah, yeah she's she, just there. She she's very bossy with the uh, with the kids with the with Scarlet, and she's you know she's kind of in charge of the house, and she you know and yeah, but uh, no, she but doesn't. There's no, there's no other side to her. No, there's no it's not multidimensional. Gone with the Wind does not give a a. A private story to any of the black characters. I've never seen the movie, so it's worth seeing. But it's um, you know you have to look at it through the lenses. Yeah, yeah, I realize that. Yeah, I'm just what reading about the mammy stereotype. In the old days, a white child who had loved his colored nurse, his mammy, with that passionate devotion which only small children can feel, who had grown used to dark velvety skin, warm deep breast, rich soothing voice, and an ease of a mind as tender the touch of a spirit almost free of sex anxiety. I'm going to stop reading this because I, wow. I don't know where this is going. <laughs> wow. Where are you getting this from? <laughs> it's called the, I don't know, it's the mythic, mythification of the mammy figure. Yeah, I suppose. It's when when you're a young white child that you see this person, uh, not as a person, but as like you know a myth. Like it's your mommy, you love her, but you don't, you know. It's she, not really. Mom. It's not a real love because she's an employee. Yeah. <laughs> or a slave, like she. It's a, she's, it's a, she's just she's there for your pleasure, but not well, that kind of pleasure. But you know what I mean. It's yeah. It's she's it's there for you relationship it really is i mean my mom always used to say that you know the um the black um servants and before that slaves in the south were the ones that taught white children their manners and that you know actually a lot of times um had certainly a lot better manners than a lot of the white people did um and you see that in stuff like to Kill a Mockingbird, and you see that in, you know, some other things, that dynamic. But I was, what book was I reading? One where, um, oh, it's a famous book. And at one point, the, the, um, the black nanny has to take the kids to, to Atlanta to see Gone with the Wind, actually. Huh. And the kid says something to her about, you know, um, missing, their home and the woman looks at her and says that's not my home i'm mm. missing my children i'm missing you know mm. i have a whole family that i'm not there because i'm taking care of you yeah and uh and that's a part of that whole thing that was just ignored for a very long time i found a much better article this one says mammy is the most well-known racial caricature of african-american women she was created during the era of american slavery as manufactured evidence that black slave women were content and even happy to be slaves 
Mm-hmm. And thus, the slavery was a humane institution. Although she had children, sometimes many, she was completely desexualized. She belonged to the white family, though she was though it was rarely stated, and she was a faithful worker. She had no black friends. The white family was her entire world. Mammy was obese, old, very dark skinned. She always wore a bandana. These physical traits were intended to protect the myth that white men did not find black women attractive, and there was no sexual contact between them within the intimate confines confines of the antebellum plantation. This was a lie, perhaps the biggest told about the slave-master relationship. Mm. The primary sources on American slavery make it all too clear that sexual exploitation of black women by their white masters was pervasive. Mm. Yep. Yep. Mammy did not fade away from the abolition of slavery and the end of the Civil War. In fact, she grew in stature during the Jim Crow era. As America turned its attention from making war to making money, a new era of manufacturing ensued, promoted by a fledgling advertising industry. Advertisers realized that Mammy had commercial value. Since the stereotype included some positive qualities involving her faithful devotion to the white family as a domestic servant, Mammy allowed whites to feel good about themselves while at the same time served as an authority on cooking and cleaning. Thus, Mammy became the perfect pitch woman to sell numerous household products, but especially breakfast foods, detergents, and other household cookings and cleaning items. The Mammy caricature thus became mainstreamed, mm-hmm. and by far the most successful Mammy in advertising and in commercials and products is Aunt Jemima. Absolutely. And her male counterpart, Uncle Ben. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So it's really delightful to see like this character introduced as, oh, you know, she's there to shine his shoots and make him peach cobbler and just show me the way to the kitchen, sir. And then at the end, she's just like, well, she's playing mahjong, gambling, smoking, speaking Chinese, cussing. It's great. It's so great. Oh, I don't know if any any either of you have ever read East of Eden, but there's a character, a Chinese character in there that's kind of similar, where he kind of plays like he's stupid. But then it, someone gets to discover that he's actually very literate and very well-spoken. But when he talks to just anybody else, he's just talking like a Chinese stereotype. It's really interesting. Yeah. I think what made her seem over the top in that last scene for me was the cigar, the cigar chomping. <laughs> like no, no <laughs> it was pretty great, though. No character who is not an over-the-top, like, crazy character uh, chomps a cigar. <laughs> So it was like the action you, you felt like or, it was a cartoon or something? Yeah, she was very, like, was, I don't know, maybe it was just because it was such a 180 from what we saw in the previous scene. But I, Again, I didn't think that was over the top, but, you know. No, me neither. I thought it was pretty great. Yeah, something else that occurred to me was something that um, back in the 60s, maybe it was even in the 50s, because my mom, again, it was something my mom had said to me, was that... Um, a black woman that she knew as they were singers together had said to her at one point, she said in many ways, she felt a lot that she was a lot freer than my mom was. She said, I can go to places you can't go because you know, like with Alma, can you imagine her playing Mahjong down in Chinatown? Mm, Yeah, no, it would have been a major scandal. Yeah. But because, because nobody really cares about what, yeah, exactly. Yeah. This one she, was she doesn't have to keep keep face, you know. Yeah, which is a terrible social thing. <laughs> yeah, and yet, you know, it's, <laughs> it's it's yeah. 
because yeah. you're so lucky. You could go anywhere and do any anything you want. Nobody cares about you or respects Nobody, yeah. you or thinks yeah. of you as a real person, as a human being. Yeah. Thanks? No. You're, you're treated like, you know, like garbage. Nobody cares. On the yeah. other hand, um, why why are there all the restrictions on white women? Because, you know... They're kept as well. Yeah, we, we own you. And, yeah. and um, we get to decide what you you know, do and what you experience and how you, you know, live your life and treat your body. And therefore, since you are our property, you are not allowed to do these things. It's not good, no matter how you look. (laughs) Unless you're EB, and then you think that white men are the real victims here. Well, of course. course. I've got feedback from Hasso. I'm going to play it now. Sure. Hi, guys. It's Hasso, back for another week. Um... And this is some uh, feedback I've got for Series 3, Episode 3, um, True Colours. Um, I took a few notes while I was watching the show, so this is as I went along. Um, I love the exchange between Wu and Al. Um, Al's been given the opportunity to hit back at Hearst in a game of chess um, through being uh, some kind of a, a translator and third party to the provisioning of um, some Chinese labourers. Um, Ellsworth and Alma. They've really hit the marriage stereotype pretty quickly, haven't they? Uh, we've got the headstrong wife, um, not reasonably considering the wealth of knowledge or logic offered by her esteemed husband. Either that or Ellsworth's just overly um, overly cautious. Uh, next highlight, Richardson's thumbs up. How good was that? Um, after EB's grovelling mess of misconceptions with Hurst, that was just an absolutely gold pose. Um, I'm sure that expression by Richardson is definitely meme-worthy, and I bet there's a heap that exists out there. <laughs> um, and, and then and then slowly following, I think shortly following that scene, there was um, an absolute contrast in, in facial expressions where we see Ellsworth um, on his visit with, with Alma to Hurst's place. What a miserable and furious face um, he had. Hurst really flexes his muscle um, in this episode. Um, he outmaneuvers Seth. When Seth wants to put him on notice, Hurst completely plays Sai out of the park, calling Sai's bluff um, with the non-existent letter. That was great. Uh, and Hurst and Alma's exchange. Alma really comes across as a naive, stubborn and borderline deluded woman um, in, in even trying to attempt that proposal. And then she continues along that line uh, without the hint of acknowledgement towards her husband that she would have been spared the whole ordeal if she'd listened to him. Uh, I thought it was great to see some comic relief there with Merrick and Blazanov. Uh, nothing like breaking it down with some acapella differential duplex. <laughs> um, and and then following on from that, um, I really enjoyed the insight into Hurst's mindset and his exchange with Sai, um, where essentially he was talking about putting off instant satisfactions or um, or relieving his immediate displeasures. And he gave some examples there about um, potentially raping Alma or, or murdering Seth, and he, he mentioned there how that would essentially cause his long-term interests to suffer. Now, there's a guy who'd passed the marshmallow test. So another great episode, as usual. I give it eight Richardson's thumbs up. Cheers, guys. Awesome. That's a good rating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, feedback from Russell. Hello, guys. Uh, I'm doing feedback for episode three and true colors and uh yeah this is perhaps hearst showing his true colors because 
what a difference uh, it makes having him in the camp. And he has really um, just about upset everybody in the uh, in the camp, I guess, um, and causing complete disruption. So I'm really enjoying seeing what that is when they put the cat amongst the pigeons. Um, please, somebody do a Richardson thumbs up gif because I just I need it in my life, and that was just one of the best parts of the episode season maybe the series um yeah and great to see uh jack langrish langrish um a brilliant costume and a real flamboyant character i i love brian cox anyway so it was great to see him arrive did you notice his little sword brooch i thought that was so cute i'm not sure what that symbolizes if anybody knows um be good to know did anybody understand what the Cornish were talking about? I mean, I live in the country where the Cornish come from. I have no idea. I put the subtitles on to see if I could uh, recognize what they were saying. And it said speaking in a foreign language. So, um, so that pretty much makes sense. But even when the guy translated, I didn't, I was none the wiser, really. It was a bit confusing. But anyway, um, I love the scene with Al, Seth and Dan and Johnny. They're all such great actors and just it was almost like a play like the way they were just all there um in in the scene together and um i don't know if you noticed when alma and hurst were going out it there was a line where he says let me name an amount to to buy you out but it seemed to me like it was dubbed and i wondered if there was any other line and that that maybe they or some maybe they it, it was mucked up when they came to the edit or whatever but it was interesting to me that that i was that was apparent to me watching it um and as i think that's marjon isn't it that they play that the um when the cookie's revealing her true sort of character um and richardson sure is there for luck for her somebody make a lucky gif as well perhaps <laughs> americans it never occurs to them to try the window it was really nice to see two old friends drinking on the balcony it seems that um Langrish knows al fairly well and i'd love to know more about that backstory i imagine perhaps a little antique shop in um in east anglia <laughs> in a corner of england somewhere um and i like the way he tipped his hat to everyone and that's sort of an Irish thing, I think, really, because uh, it reminded me when I was working in Galway for about a week and everybody, as you walk down the street, everybody says good morning to you. And it's a lovely thing. And you don't know at first, you're, it's a strange thing. And I remember shortly after coming back to um, London and walking down the street and just saying hello to everybody and everybody looking at me like I was mad. So it's sort of sad that that's gone. But it, I, I couldn't help thinking it was an Irish thing. Um Doc's coughing. I was worried about him. He gave me a flashback to Cuckoo's Nest, funny enough, with that seminal part that he did. And, uh, you know, made, I don't know, it just reminded me of that, that, the, the trouble and the, and the fear and the sickness and the everything. It was just, uh, he's a brilliant actor and, um, and it's great to see him in this series. I love Doc. And um, once again, Soul's left perplexed by two people. I think he just basically just wants to sell hardware and he's not too worried about anything else. Um, but yeah, I really liked this episode and I really liked, uh, the new introduction of the characters at this point. And, um, to see Al with an old friend, it's like nice to see you sort of fills me with comfort to think of the two friends walking and sharing their life stories. And you never know, they may join the perambulators yet. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed this episode, and uh, talk to you soon, guys. Bye. Bye. 
I think that Jack arrived in Deadwood at exactly the right time because Al doesn't have anyone to talk to. He can't talk to Dan and Johnny and Silas because they're his employees. So who's he going to talk to? Well, he can talk to an old friend. The head? Yeah, but that's not that's not healthy. That's not healthy. And and he used to <laughs> talk to himself or Dolly, you know, while she gave him blowjobs. That wasn't very healthy. Is the head gone or is it still there? I think it's still around, but you know, it, these things do get old. You know, it, it it is good to change things up and have him talking to somebody else. I just had an image of Jack giving Al a blowjob. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, better you than me. <laughs> just like, mm, that would well. be funny, though. <laughs> Although I don't think it would be very fitting, because I don't feel like you could tell this guy to shut up. <laughs> like he could Dolly. <laughs> we have some more written feedback. I will have Matt read this one. It comes from Barb. Parp? What? Parp. Aw, <laughs> oh, it's from Parp. <laughs> oh, and hopefully, Russell, we explained what the Cornishmen were saying. They were saying Parp. No, I'm in this episode. <laughs> they were saying they're parp. saying they're saying parp, and Wu was saying ho. <laughs> <laughs> what is this word? He never used to use this word. Yeah, it's something he picked up in San Francisco, but it's not an English word. I don't know. Anyways, this is from Parp. Hi guys, it's episodes <laughs> like this one that remind me why I never watch Deadwood at bedtime. Oh. After a lot of thought, here are a few things that made me happy this week. Wonderful Cynthia Ettinger from Carnival has joined the cast, and Richardson has job security and may have found a friend. Anybody else spot his good luck token at the Mahjong table? Are those antlers in your pocket, or are you just happy to see me? (laughs) I love that this episode ended with that friendly slap on Al's ass. Until it happened, I'd never have imagined such a thing. It's nice that Al finally has someone whom he can talk with as an equal uh, that he doesn't have to maintain his image with. Again, I didn't think about it until we saw him admit to Jack how worried he is about Hearst, and uh, that he's been having to put on a brave front in front of everyone at the gym, including Trixie, who opened the episode scolding him for folding your fucking tent. In that brief glimpse of Joni shooing Langrish away from the Chez Ami, uh, she seemed to be in a better mood. Uh, but everything else was horribly troubling. Doc's cough, the plight of the Cornishman and Hearst's enlistment of Tolliver. Who knew that Sai finally getting his comeuppance would be so unsatisfying? I know you'll all have plenty to say about the Alma and Hearst scene, so I'll add. all I'll add is that I was terrified for her, but then could have smacked her for that you can't to Ellsworth. <laughs> he's already feeling, he's already reeling with impotent rage right now. That was the wrong thing to say. Mm, impotent rage is the worst kind of rage. <laughs> is it? <laughs> for the person feeling it <laughs> my rage has always been quite potent <laughs> people feel your wrath all the time mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, she echoes what I said earlier about Al finally having someone who he can talk with as an equal and he doesn't have to maintain an image with exactly I think that again that's why he's it's nice to have Jack in camp to have that person cool I just love that Aunt Lou has adopted Richardson. Yes. It's like a good luck charm. I think yeah. it's fantastic. It is. And we have one final piece of feedback. This is from Carla and Mel. <laughs> have you read this one? Who, me? Yeah, you. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
No Starts will. With, guys. No will this week. No will this week. I keep looking oh, at my email and it hasn't no? come in yet. Mm, it's gonna be some murdering happening. Hi guys, this is one of my favorite episodes of this season. We get introduced to two great characters, Aunt Lou and Jack Langrish, and it's nice that they have some level of connection with Alan Hurst, in whose company the two of them act almost naturally. But there's a difference. Jack's relationship with Al is one of friendship, while Aunt Lou is basically just a servant, and Hurst can very well pretend they share some memories and loyalty for each other. But she actually hates him and feels only disgust for his person. After all, something that Hurst seems to forget, affection and respect, simply can't be bought. True debt. I think Alma is the star of this episode. I love the way she stands up to Ellsworth, even though he was right, because she shows she isn't going to let any man dictate her actions anymore. And if she gets hurt in the way, too bad. At least she was free to make a decision and learn with her mistakes. And Hurst displaying his vile nature is always terrifying and kind of fun to see. In that scene with Alma, he was almost animalistic. I hate him as a person, but I can't deny he's an extremely fascinating character to watch. Anyway, I hope you guys like this episode because I really, really love it. Thank you very much, Carla. Thank you, Carla. Yeah, thank you, Carla. And thank you to all of our feedbackers, Barb, Carla, Harold, Nutty, Russell, and Hasso. R.I.P. Will. (laughs) (laughs) Soon. Soon. Well, let's find out if you loved it or not. Uh, we'll get on to episode ratings. Mel, why don't you go first? Oh my god! Um, yeah, I really like this episode. Um, I'm debating giving it a 10. Should I? Yeah, why not? I just, there's nothing that I have to complain, really, about this episode. I thought everything was pretty good. Uh, yeah, 10 out of 10 smooth potatoes, as smooth as can be. <laughs> <laughs> just like this episode. Nice. <laughs> uh matt how about you uh i agree i liked everything about this episode except for the size scene i just i never like any size scene i just want side to be gone it's pretty despicable though so nine out of ten loses a point for having a scene with sai um nine out of ten playful taps on the bum but you gave last week's a 10 and that had sai in it yeah i should have taken a point off Oh. Mm. What, what about Hurst? Hurst is pretty despicable too. He is. He's getting there. But somebody needs to be the antagonist. It's the fact that Sai is so oily. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, he is. He's gross. Okay, so nine. Carol, what about you? Um, I'm going to go with nine and a half out of ten power hungry psychopaths. Nice. I like this episode. I don't like Hurst much, but I like this episode. Mm. Well, uh, I made it no secret that I really enjoyed this one because I got two very entertaining characters in Jack and Aunt Lou. Uh, I love that she adopts Richardson. Just There's so much funny stuff like Al showing Jack the camp and the, the scene with Hearst and Alma is very scary. So it's always great when the episode can veer between hu- humor and and drama like that yeah. so well. It, it does it very well. Yeah, I like that. The previous season... It was more like just like straight ahead business transactions. Yeah, it was kind of boring. And this this season seems to be like fun stuff and scary stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'm um, going to give it a 10 out of 10 smacks on the snout. Oh, well, everybody's getting smacked this episode. Yeah, smacked really? Yes, on the snout. <laughs> How about uh, your character of the episode, Mel? <laughs> hmm. 
I don't know, Al for all, all his friendships that he has. I just enjoyed those. And I just enjoyed him giving the tour of the camp. I just, I don't know. It was just pretty great. This episode. Okay. Matthew, how about you? I will go with Jack. I liked him. He's a yeah. cool new character and I like, I love the actor. Yeah. Fantastic. Carol. I'm torn between Alma and Aunt Lou. Um, Alma really is, I don't like what she's doing, but she, she's really putting herself forward and, and out there and, and all. Aunt Lou is, I have a feeling there's a lot more to come with her. Um, at least I certainly hope so. Um, I'm going to go with Alma. Okay, good. I'm I'm glad you said Alma because I wanted to say Aunt Lou. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Not that two people can't have the same character, but it was it'd be right. fun to kind of spread the love. Yeah. Yeah. Aunt Lou is uh, hilarious and has hidden depths. A lot of yes. dimension to her. And you can tell that she's a good person because she likes Richardson. <laughs> so. Okay. Quotes. Who has a quote? Oh, Matt, do you want to do that quote? Okay. we got to find it. Somebody else go while we find it. All right, Carol. Um, let's see. Where is my quote? Um, new friends, old campaigners, the infrequent bloody win, always superfluous bloodshed, the deeper damage is best. Wow. Very nice. All right. We're going to do like a, Matt and I are going to do a joint quote. Okay. When does it stop? Right here. Yeah, about about there. Yeah, no and then you're gonna do one with me, unless you're taking the one that I was gonna have us do. Oh, I don't know. Maybe we'll see. <clears throat> uh, can you speak in a high voice, Mister Merrick? I can speak in a low voice. Blazinov will then speak in high voice. <laughs> Keep speaking on in your low voice, while Blazinov at the same time from speaks this, highly. From this is duplex, duplex telegraphy. <laughs> From this point on, I shall speak in my low voice. Excuse me, but I can't understand you when we both talk at once. Excuse me. Well, I uh, won't keep you from your work. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Was that your quote? No. (laughs) Okay. Matt or Mel, who wanna, wanna, you wanna help me out with this scene here? You wanna, do you wanna, who wants to, who wants to help me out? Yeah, uh, sure, I can help. Okay, you wanna be Richardson or EB? <laughs> Richardson, of course! <laughs> Alright. <laughs> Candidly, Richardson, as I imagine you foraging for berries and grubs and flicking at insects with your sticky tongue, I feel a certain dismay. What are you talking about? You are to be discharged, fool, as I suspect in a wink of time, once some stage from a different direction arrives with my replacement, am I? What did we do wrong? Your error, surprisingly enough, is not to be a grotesque of inconceivable stupidity, but that you are white and male and not repulsively obese. As for my own, I wonder if it lies in an excessive courtesy and eagerness to please. Shoo, skunk! Shoo! Go, go! <laughs> <laughs> that was one of my quotes too, so I'm glad I got, I got to take part of it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so good. <laughs> Ever wonder if you expressed yourself more directly, Merrick? You might fucking weigh less. We've <laughs> <laughs> got a couple from Al and Jack when they're just walking around. What sort of plays does she favor? Oh Christ! She, she told me, and I fucking forgot. <laughs> the Bullock House, fucking sheriff, insane fucking person. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> I 
want to take a tour just like that. <laughs> people talk. The person, like the tour guide, just talks about the people just like. That. <laughs> uh, uh, so good. I don't know if I've mentioned it before, but I think E.B. and Richardson should have a spinoff. Yes, I would watch that. <laughs> I don't know. Too much of E.B. would. I'm not sure I could deal with it. True. Yeah, but still. Carol, more quotes. What? More quotes, Carol. I have known more quotes. Aww. I only had the one. I know. I got involved with watching the thing, and I didn't do any more quotes. That's why you go back through the transcript and write stuff down. I, I like know. the uh, I like the Hing Dai Chung Kuo, which I translated as BFFs forever. <laughs> oh, little hearts in my notebook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hurst. I'd not be insulted in my own rooms, Mr. Ellsworth. Where shall we go for me to do it? (laughs) (laughs) More Alan Jack. They're out on the balcony at the end. I'll tell you the truth. I begin to wonder if I mightn't be fucking queer. You see more to admire in the male asshole than you'd realized hitherto. (laughs) (laughs) This episode, just too good. (laughs) Let's see here. Anything else? Where is your lair so that I may beard you? <laughs> beard you. Well, I will end with this one from Hurst. You are reckless, madam. You indulge yourself. Oh. What a downer. That's such an, a downer end, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'll do this other one instead. I can offer no inside explanation, Mrs. Ellsworth, as I am not a capon, which details offend me and why your proposal offends completely and mistakes my nature absolutely. Oh, wait, that's not any better. No, not really. <laughs> here's one from here's one from Alma. You say this is my physician? Yes. Not my re- reprover or rebuker? No. Then thank you, doctor, and good morning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was funny. Oh, okay, here's one. Tuesdays, he'll tend to have amateur nights. Been to plenty of those. Virginia City, guy farted seen near an hour. That don't sound <laughs> like no amateur. <laughs> <laughs> that's an expert farter. <laughs> Okay, well, in two weeks, we will return with episode 28, Full Faith and Credit. Full Faith and Credit. In Credit or And Credit? Full Faith and Credit. Okay, And. Um, People are attending Andy Crane's new church, and uh, they can't afford to uh, put money in the the basket, so they're going to charge the credit. (laughs) Yeah, that's what it is. It's going to be very heavily about uh, the new bank. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, yeah, the bank. Yeah, it's going to be all about Saul, and it's just going to follow Saul in a day in the life of Saul. Oh, I would not I would enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Except he doesn't really, like, he just kind of, like, takes things in, and he doesn't really seem to say much. Hmm. This episode, he swept the floor, and, <laughs> and then Seth yeah. was standing in the way, and yes. he's like, I'll come back later. <laughs> when you're not in the way. <laughs> Mm. Um, yeah, he kind of just exists for people to dump their shit onto. Yeah, I know. He deserves better. Mel, did you have a prediction? Or did I, I miss said, it? I'm I already sorry. said, I I lo- said it's Andy Kramed is going to open oh, up a yeah, yeah. or whatever. Yeah, I guess maybe that's kind of lame. I can think of a better one. Yeah, usually your predictions are entertaining, shall we say? <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> <laughs> They're always deadly serious. What's the name again? Full faith and credit. It's kind of. Uh, it's going to be about church and taxes. <laughs> I don't know. 
So the church is going to become the government? Yes. And they're going to charge people taxes? Deadwood becomes a theocratic, uh, the- theocratic uh, republic. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they will vote Andy Crame as the mayor. Yes. And he will rule over all mm-hmm. with the power of Jesus. Okay. <laughs> there. It'll sound funny next week when you what? read it. What? Oh, yeah. <laughs> One ring to rule them all, except it's, you know, Jesus. <laughs> Not the mm. ring. <laughs> Carol, predictions? Um, how about if alliances become clearer? And I keep thinking of Alma finally admitting that she should put her faith in what Ellsworth is saying and give him credit for what he's been telling her all along. But, I mean, I could see that applying to a lot of people in this where, you know, they're finally admitting who they should have faith in and who should get credit for for uh, some of the things that they've been ideas that they've been giving. But that's probably not what it's about because you never know. So rarely is about anything that makes any sense. <laughs> but this one was so. Mm-hmm. Well, for our miscellaneous prediction, you'll you notice that there was no Jane this episode. This is true. So, how many characters will we see next episode? That we didn't see this episode. Oh. <clears throat> mm. Hmm. How many characters are there? Let's see. What? Sorry. Say that again. How many characters will we see next episode that we didn't <laughs> see this episode? Well, who didn't we see? We didn't see Jane. Like Jane. Didn't see <laughs> uh, Big Guy. Who's Big Guy? The guy who Jane's always yelling at. Okay, Moses. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll let you guys work through it. I'll say two. We didn't see. Oh, we didn't see the guy who was riding the bicycle when the kid got killed. Tom Nuttall. Right. Uh-huh. Or or any of the guys in the in that group. We didn't uh-huh. see. Oh, we didn't see any. We didn't see any horrors this time at all. Did we? Mm, no, just Trixie reformed <laughs> whore. Joni reformed whore. Yeah, we What's... didn't actually see any. Well, they're not any... characters unless they have a line. Well, I, I see the only whore is really Dolly. Services Al, and then then there was there was Jen who Johnny was teaching to read, and then oh I guess there's Tess and Lila over at the Bella Union. I'm gonna say two, <clears throat> two, yeah, Mel, five. I don't know. Right. Carol, I'll go with three. Okay. Well, anyone uh, up to anything that they want to plug or promote? Uh, Carol, how many episodes of McKinley Cast have you recorded since we began the season? <laughs> Uh, since we began the season, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know, I've lost count. It's got to be two, maybe. I don't think three. T- three, maybe. Somewhere between really. zero and none. No, hey, since not since the last time we recorded, yeah, between zero and none. But you said since no, since we oh, began this season. Oh, oh, season three. <laughs> yeah, it's between zero and none. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we've talked about it. <laughs> oh. Um. A little bit. Well, that's something. Yeah, but we haven't scheduled one yet. We will soon. You should. Just... Yeah, I've been waiting for uh, for Rich to heal up. Yeah, it's hard to be the host of a podcast when you have mouth problems. Yes, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll... also, I didn't want to uh, press it for this week because, hey, we were recording, so. Right. Well, yeah. we take precedence. We have a set schedule. We got to stick to it. Unless Matt I mean, has another done. birthday. Matt, are you we having are another just... birthday this year? Yeah, I might have a couple more. Damn it. <laughs> I age a couple more years this year. We have recorded um, on the same night as 
McKinley cast same night as we did Hoople cast because we start McKinley cast in su- on Sunday evenings. So, and I believe Harold was guest on both of them that night. Mm-hmm. And Matt and Mel, you still doing the Defenders podcast? Yep. Talking yep. about Daredevil. <clears throat> yes. I haven't started the new season yet. Is it good? Yes. Yeah, I, I like think it. it's better than the first season. Oh, good. We're only three episodes in, but it's really good. I assume uh, it's better because there's more foggy. Uh, the foggy's a little bit better this season. I find he's more tolerable. Okay. <laughs> I, he's still not super like. There's still some issues that I have, but overall, he's better. Guess you track down the Vulture TV podcast where they talk about Daredevil and Jessica Jones, and they compare the two shows. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's really interesting. Interesting. Basically, they they say that Jessica Jones has more on its mind than superhero stuff. Mm. They deal with headier topics of yep. of abuse and consent and post traumatic stress disorder. And Daredevil is like an argument between should we is it okay to kill people or just maim them? <laughs> yeah, not an argument that anyone ever has. <laughs> mm. Well, as long as you're enjoying it. My favorite part, uh, it's only happened a couple times, but I really enjoy it, Matt, when when it's time for Daredevil quotes, you just quote Deadwood instead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you should do that more often. It gets a good laugh. Yeah, you should keep doing that. Yep. Well, we, we could always use the plug. <laughs> uh, Matt and I do a podcast called Matt is Wrong About Games. The last time we recorded, our recording got uh, erased. Oh my. So we were. Did you guys give up on the podcast? No, we're gonna do it. Um, I think on the twenty first. No, awesome. The fourteenth. How's that sound? Thursday the fourteenth. Yeah. So go onto Facebook and look up uh, Matt is wrong about games, and then I will be starting Clone Dance Party soon. Oh yeah, I just was uh, turned someone on to Orphan Black this morning. As a matter of fact, we were we were over trying to fix her DVD player. Which it turned out that they had a, a software DVD in there instead of a um, or a software CD instead of an actual DVD. Ugh, rookie move. And while we were there, um, we set up their Wi-Fi to go through their, so they could get Amazon and stuff like that on their TV. And uh, Orphan Black came up, and I was like, "You should watch this. This is she'd never heard of it or anything." So oh my God, I know, I know. So. Uh, my son and I were both like, I I showed her the first like the teaser to the first episode, and um, she's like, well now I'm hooked. Now I've got to just leave it on, leave it on because we were gonna put it all back. Leave it on, on you know. I was like, okay, go for it. So. Basically, I only watched the show to bask in the gloriousness that is Tatiana Maslany. That's what I was saying to her. Yeah. Like you know, she they ignored her for awards until this past year, and. You know, my only theory was that they just didn't know which character to nominate. You know, it was like, which actress? I mean, they're all really good. <laughs> good stuff. All right. Well, we you can find us online at hooplecast.com. That's where you'll find the show notes and links to discussion threads and all the past episodes. Go on to iTunes, leave a five-star review, and uh, go on Facebook, search for Hooplecast, Twitter at Hooplecast, send feedback to hooplecast at gmail.com. Okay, uh, we will see you in two weeks for episode 28, Full Faith and Credit. Until then, goodbye and fuck you. (laughs) Fuck you right back. Fuck you.
was afraid of the guns and the gangs and the company thanks to the deputy sheriff who made the raid as she went to the union hall where a meeting act was called and when the boys had come up to her lord this is what you oh you can't scare me i'm sticking to the union i'm sticking to the union i'm sticking to the union oh you can't scare me i'm sticking to the union i'm sticking to the union till the day i die to the tricks of the company splash She'd take the dare, she didn't care She always organized the guys And she always got her way When she asked for better pay She showed her card to the National Guard Honey, this is what they say Oh, you can't scare me I'm sticking to the union I'm sticking to the union I'm sticking to the union Oh, you can't scare me I'm sticking to the union I'm sticking to the union Till the day I die Hi, Carol. No guest today. No guest? Huh? No it's guest. Okay. Oh, it's okay. We don't need a guest. We don't. Shh, we don't need <clears throat> It's gross. <laughs> All right. Right. <laughs> right. No guest. Fuckers. They're gross. We hate them. <laughs> oh, man. I was t- I'll tell you guys later when we're doing the recording, but I was watching this uh, video about Seth Bullock, and there was a character in it called Crazy Steve, and I'm still laughing about him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I cannot wait to hear about this. Crazy Steve. Is he based on the Steve from this? <laughs> I don't, no, I don't think so. No, probably not. Uh, yeah, I mean, is that Steve based on? No, I don't think so. There were fewer names back then, so. Yeah, it's a true. Of, a lot of doubled up... Uh, a lot of Dan's. A lot of Dan's, a lot of John's, Williams, and Steve's. <laughs> Stevens. A lot of Parps. <laughs> Matt. Parp. <laughs> so I'm surprised we haven't run into more Marys. I know. Did we did we have any Marys yet? I don't was it seems te- like we have, but I can't come up with who it was. Was the teacher that, I think maybe the teacher that Merrick fancied. Her name was Mary? His name Mary. Huh. And then she went to the into his office and someone had shat in there and it was, she was like, oh, I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all it took. <laughs> they also destroyed the newspaper office, so. True. She may have gotten the impression she was living in a lawless place. <laughs> I don't. I don't know what would have given her that idea. 
give her that idea. Yeah. Uh, All right. I guess we're ready. Uh, Making sure my recordings are going. Okay. We get introduced to two great characters, Aunt Luanette and Jack. (laughs) I was going to say Aunt Luanette, Jack. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Aunt Lou and Jack Langrish. (laughs) And it's nice. Do you want me to start that over? No, keep going. (laughs) You're like, I give up. (laughs) Please don't regret asking me to read this. (laughs) Too late. Another great episode as usual. I give it eight Richardson's thumbs up. Cheers, guys. Awesome. That's a good rating. Yeah. Sorry, marshmallow test? What's that? What is that? (laughs) I don't know. I'm looking it up now. Stanford marshmallow experiment. Oh, that's the thing with the kids. Oh, right. (laughs) Okay. Well, now it's completely clear. Thank you for clearing. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. All right. Take it away. Explain. (laughs) Oh. Just a sec, I have a chip in my mouth. Oh. <laughs> Mel failed the chip test. I failed the chip <laughs> test. I couldn't help myself. It's like, they put a kid in a room with a bunch of, um... Well, they, they, okay. One marshmallow. With one, one marshmallow, mar- and they say, okay, I'm gonna leave this room. Don't eat that marshmallow. If you, do, if you don't, if eat, you that don't eat that marshmallow, you're gonna get something even better later. So they leave the room, and supposedly, if the kid eats the marshmallow, that... Chances are they'll be less successful later in life because they couldn't help themselves. They, they just went wait. for the yeah. They can't wait for the better reward later. But for the kids who do wait, apparently they are more successful because they're able to you know delay Resist immediate temptation. Shut up, Matt. <laughs> Let me explain. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're they can delay immediate pleasure for you know the greater reward in the end. Mm. I don't I don't know how true this is, but. It sounds it sounds a little iffy. Yeah. I think it depends on who gives you the marshmallow. <laughs> Cuz I think if cert- like if you if you know this person like oh they say that if I wait I'll get something better. But I know this jackass. <laughs> I I'm not getting anything better. I'm just going to eat this marshmallow. Well, it's going what's going to happen is in 10 minutes he's going to come back and he's going to take the marshmallow and I'm going and I'm going to end up with nothing and he's going to say sucker. Yeah. <laughs> so if you think like that you might eat the marshmallow and it has nothing to do with whether or not you can wait or not. I would pass this test with flying colors because I don't like marshmallows. And neither do I. (laughs) There you go. But but the other thing is, does that, if you have that mindset that you're always going to be taken advantage of and you should grab what you can right now, is that going to help you or hurt you later on in life? If that, if that is your general mindset. Well, it's a seize the opportunity kind of thing. Right. But that's kind of the, what the test, the experiment is all about, I think. But again, it depends on the person who's giving you the marshmallow. Like, do you trust them or not? If you haven't met this person... Then you may be more inclined to. But also, if you're in a room by yourself and someone's doing an experiment on you, yeah. don't trust this person. Yeah. I think, honestly, I think it's all part of the experiment. I think, and I think they... What you're expressing them, right now is part of, is part of the mindset experiment. I think what happened too, they would give them, like the reward would, they would give them would be like another marshmallow, you know, yeah, like two marshmallows instead of one, you know, that kind of thing. And, and Matt and I are like, no, we wanted, we wanted a salad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a salad. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it is if you, if 
they make it very specific that they'll give you two marshmallows or three marshmallows or something later. Yeah. Uh, if you don't eat the one now. Yeah. Yeah. The they only are- way. The only way I like marshmallows is if they're melted into Rice Krispie squares. Mm, <laughs> not roasted or anything? No. Nope. Like, they get grosser when they're roasted. Really? And they just burn your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> well, then you're eating it too hot. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Although a s'more is pretty good. Now I'm reading about the new marshmallow experiment. Oh. oh really? Yes. Researchers from the University of Rochester divided a group of 28 children in half and primed them to feel that they were in reliable or unreliable situations. They presented the children with closed jars of crayons and told them if they could wait to open the jar until the adult came back, they would get a new, bigger set of art supplies to draw with instead. (laughs) For children in the reliable group, the adult returned with the promised new supplies. For the unreliable group, the adult came back, apologized for not having the new supplies and suggested the children draw with the original crayons. They ran a second similar scenario using stickers, then the marshmallow test. Again, each child was in a chair at a table alone with a marshmallow and told that if he or she could wait, there would be a second marshmallow when the adult returned, or a salad. Children in the reliable environment waited on average four times longer than the children in the unreliable environment. Hmm. Wow. And so what what they're saying is that if you create... The reliable environment of showing that you patience is rewarded, then you'll wait. And if it's unreliable and you're like, I don't trust this fucker, like, mm-hmm. then you will not wait. So it doesn't have anything to do with. To me, it's pretty common sense. I don't know. It, it seems like you don't need to test for this. No. But what they're saying is it suggests that willpower, a major character trait, is part nature, part nurture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense. It's kind of obvious. So I may be a hooplehead, but this is pretty obvious. <laughs> what a shock! Stability and reliability enhances performance and trust. Yeah. I am shocked. I really needed crayons and marshmallows and stickers and salads to teach me this. <laughs> um, and why did this relate to Deadwood? I forget. Uh, oh, because um, because Hurst would have passed the marshmallow test. Yeah, because he knows to wait. Yeah. <laughs> they put they put preschoolers in, in in a room and they said if you don't rape this woman we'll give you gold. <laughs> oh my god, that was the old time marshmallow test. Yeah, <laughs> they've learned from their past experience. Uh, horrible, horrible, horrible. Uh, feedback from Russell. There are kids here. Put your penis away. 